So think about a graph where on the x-axis you have salary for, for a job, right? So on the left-hand side, like very low paid, right-hand side, very high paid. And then on the y-axis, you have uh, how exposed jobs um, at that level are, right? So for robots, you have a line um, that basically starts high on the left and then goes down a lot. So it's very low-skilled jobs, so it's low-paid jobs that are exposed to robots and high-skilled jobs are not at all exposed. For software, you have a very different pattern, which is that actually the lowest skilled jobs are not that exposed and the highest skill not that exposed. It's the middle skilled jobs that are most exposed. But the really interesting thing is for AI, it's a completely different pattern again. It's actually the sort of upper middle skilled jobs that are most exposed. So the line kind of starts on the bottom left um, at like a low level and then it goes up and up and up and up and it peaks, I think, at the sort of the 88th percentile of, of jobs as a, by sort of by salary, right? So like really, really upper, upper income, sort of high paid jobs and then sort of goes down at the very top. The CEOs pay the most and not exposed so much, but the sort of the lawyers and the accountants, whatever, they, they actually are exposed. This episode is just so good. Uh, you're in for a treat today. Or at least I loved it. So you're in for a treat if you have tastes like mine. Uh, I, I learned so much listening to this one over the weekend. Louisa interviews economist Michael Webb of DeepMind, the British government, and Stanford University about how AI progress is going to affect people's jobs and the labor market, something which he has been studying for many years now. Will we see mass employment anytime soon? Whose incomes are going to go up and whose are going to go down? How widely shared will all the benefits likely be? Will regulation greatly slow down deployment of all of this technology? How likely is it that AI could lead to explosive economic growth? And of course, what can we learn from history? And what reasons are there to think that perhaps this time it really is different uh, than all of the times that we've seen before? Louisa and Michael are so thorough that it's not until the second hour that they actually get to those arguments for expecting AI to be a really exceptional case. So if you're wondering why they're not more seriously contemplating futures that get strange, just stick around. That said, Michael's expectations for the economic effects of AI in the short to medium term aren't as radical as some previous guests, like Tom Davidson, who spoke about his modeling of a really rapid economic takeoff earlier in the year. So I'm glad we have this interview so that you can hear every different angle on this question. All right, without further ado, I bring you Louisa Rodriguez and Michael Webb. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Webb. Michael most recently served as a senior aide to Rishi Sunak, where his brief covered everything from UK's economic response to COVID, to artificial intelligence, the UK's science budget, higher education, startups and venture capital, setting up ARIA, the UK's new R&D funding agency, talent visas, and many other policy areas. Before serving in government, Michael was a research scientist at Google DeepMind and received his PhD from Stanford University. He's published articles on a wide range of topics and was co-author of the now famous article, Are Ideas Getting Harder to Find? And he's also done influential work on the topic we'll be focusing on today, the impact of artificial intelligence on the labor market. Before Stanford, Michael studied at Balliol College, Oxford and MIT. He was also at various points an organ scholar and choral conductor, an epidemiology researcher at Harvard, and a war correspondent for The Economist, where he reported from Afghanistan. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. 
So I hope to talk about the impact AI will have on the labor market over the next few years, um, and in particular, how it'll affect our jobs. Uh, but first, often I know a lot about guest positions on on the broader topic of AI before they're coming on, if we're going to if we're going to speak about AI. Um, and I actually don't know that much about yours. So I'm curious how excited or worried you are about, yeah, the development of AI and possibly AGI. Mm, awesome. So I have been somewhat engaged in this question for um, quite a long time. So more than 10 years now, I've sort of, you know, been hanging out with people who think that the the end is nigh, um, or at least, you know, big, big things are going to happen very, very soon. And actually, you know, the very beginning of my PhD in 2014, I sort of decided that this seemed like kind of the most important question that um, people could possibly be thinking about and, and studying. And so, you know, ended up sort of pivoting all of my research to focus on on that that question. And as part of that, I ended up working with with DeepMind for as a, several years as a, as a research scientist and did a bunch of different things. Um, one of the things I did, which again, I can't say much about because for obvious reasons, it's, it's quite confidential, but it was some kind of exercise um, that you might call today a sort of timelines or forecasting exercise to think about um, what was what was happening with with AI sort of in in the world and and what it would be able to do at different points in the future. So yeah, can't say much about about that. However, I think one thing I'm, I'm sort of comfortable sharing is one thing that everyone in in all of DeepMind pretty much agreed with was uh, the following claim. So we were talking about you know different capabilities that might become possible with AI at different points in the future. And one capability we talked about quite a lot was, would an algorithm be able to write an undergraduate level essay on Foucault? Okay. Michel Foucault being the sort of the famously abstruse uh, French uh, philosopher. And who I had, the reason I sort of used it was because that was my hardest week in all of my undergrad. I was having to write an essay on, on Foucault. And indeed, I ended up spending much more than a week uh, doing it in the end and had a great time, but it was, it was, it was extremely hard. And so I was like, that, 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 that's like a nice benchmark of a hard task. Right. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, asked this question to these all these people at DeepMind, all these researchers, and everyone universally agreed that an algorithm would not be able to write an undergraduate level essay on Foucault for a very, very long time from now. So, say, sort of the, the 2040s. Uh, wow. At the end, and say, when right? was this again? This was in 2017, I should say. Okay, yeah. okay. So at least a few decades. Yep. So uh, six years ago now, right. And so, <laughs> as you might guess, when I got access to GPT, I guess GPT-3, um, sort of the text of Vinci, 03, whenever that was in 2020 for the first time, no, 2021. Um, the first thing that I put into it was this essay title um, that I had to answer myself as an undergraduate um, a you know, decade ago. And it did a pretty possible job. Like it clearly passed my sort of internal mental benchmark of like what a decent undergraduate essay on this uh, would look like. And so that for me was this very visceral feeling of Here's this thing that like the smartest people with all the, you know, the knowledge and on the cutting edge and, you know, in, in the world thought, you know, a small number of years ago was was completely decades away. And like these people were themselves kind of on the leading edge of being optimistic about this. And then here we are, something that was going to be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years away. Suddenly we just like rushed past it in, you know, three, four, five years. So that that was a sort of feeling of, okay, whatever I think in terms of, 
how fast things will be or how long they could take. Um, it's possible for me to be very wrong on the the side of, you know, things moving much faster than you expect, right? Right. Um, and so I guess the, the question for me is like, do I sort of say, okay, let's take how fast things actually were between 2017 and 2022, say, and just assume that will continue. Um, I, I was sort of too low before, it's going to be faster. Or do I think, actually, you know what, sort of, what we did was to sort of, we, we took the kind of, the linear forecast from 2017 and it turned out it was sort of the second derivative it was like the, the acceleration was what was happening and so we actually need to continue forecasting the acceleration and i think we can have a long discussion about this um and i think it's probably the answer is somewhere in the middle and, and maybe there's been acceleration and, and maybe it's going to sort of you know it, it'll slow a little bit for, for various reasons but broadly i think you know we are at a already an incredible level of capabilities, which we'll spend a lot of time talking about, I guess, for the rest of this this conversation. There's a lot of kind of very obvious slow hanging fruit with what we already have um, to sort of to make it ever more, you know, more more effective. And I you know, strongly suspect that we're going to see at least, you know, what we saw from GBD3 to GBD4 is the same again, right, in the next year or two um, seems pretty likely. And, you know, that that's going to be huge because the first thing was, was, was enormous, right? Right, that's already um, huge. So the answer is, <laughs> yep. you know, but I think the GPT-4 is, I'm curious how, how you know, whether you think this, this is sort of obvious or, or a controversial statement, but it seems to me that it is better than the average human at pretty much everything where you can make a fair comparison, i.e. it's sort of, it's a text in, text out type type thing. That's a massive deal. And I think people don't really <laughs> yeah. haven't sort of got their heads around how big a deal that is. Um, totally. I think there's a thing where people, they're like, well, it can't do this super well. Uh, and so like, it's still clearly limited. Uh, but like, if you take most of the things it can do well, it is just like, uh, both much better at the, like at that thing. And also has like a bunch of things. It's like insanely better at including just like um productivity like even if mm. like the one essay on Foucault is only like somewhat better than the average students uh it could write thousands of them in a day uh mm. and i i feel like people miss some of the ways it's not just like uh roughly parody or somewhat better but also just like uh worlds better in a few other important ways but go on so yeah i, I guess you know these elements we'll, we'll sort of we'll discuss in lots more detail over the course of today vis-a-vis economic impacts. I imagine some listeners at least will be very bored by now of hearing people geek out <laughs> about exactly what it can do and how great it is. Um, sure. So I, I don't want to sort of spend lots of time sort of sharing my personal experiences of, of all of that other than to say I think it's completely amazing and I spend, you know, I spend, you know, depending on the day it is, like if I'm in meetings all day then no, but if I'm you know, all day just on my laptop doing whatever it is, I would easily spend three, four, five, six hours a day, you know, use, interacting with GPT-4 or, or Claude for the most part. Um, and it's just been transformative for sort of many, many areas. And pretty much anything you can think of, it's like there's a way it can really transform things. Um, so the answer is, yes, I'm extremely excited and also, you know, concerned because this is going to have, you know, hu- huge impacts and there's, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, safety issues as well, which, you know, you have covered well on on this podcast with other guests that I think are, you know, incredibly, incredibly serious and and important 
Cool. Well, let's, yeah, let's dive into your area of expertise. So as you've said already, uh, there's been a lot of public discussion about how AI systems like large language models might affect the economy and the labor market since the release of, yeah, GPT-3 and 4. Um, you've already hinted at some of the capabilities, but I was particularly blown away by some of the test scores it got. Um, so it scored in the 88th percentile on the LSAT, the 99th percentile for the verbal GRE, the 80th on the math GRE. Uh, it got fives on the AP exams in biology, macroeconomics, and microeconomics. Uh, it did much worse on writing-oriented exams, but still uh, the overall picture seemed to me to be that, uh, yeah, these LLMs are just getting really good at some types of things. And as you said, good enough that they might be able to contribute more and more to the economy. And again, you've alluded to this as well. There seem to be loads of anecdotal reports of people using LLMs uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. And yeah, I'm wondering if there have been any particular developments that you found, you know, especially surprising or impressive. Yeah, um, so, so, so many. But let me just, I guess, mention a couple of them. So the first one is everything that it can do with code. So in particular... The fact I can just say, um, you know, make me a, you know, interactive visualization that does this um, or create something for me that, you know, ha has these properties or whatever it is. Um, it can just create that. And so something that would have taken a software engineer, you know, a full day's work or something. I, who, you know, I've got lots of sort of engineering experience, but sort of I haven't made front-end apps or whatever and, and in this case recently i was making a front-end app that i wanted to use for something just did it in like 20 minutes they're like done from like end to end wow. and so that was just like this is amazing in terms of what it makes possible the sort of the reduction in cost of highly customized software or widgets or, or sort of who knows what in sort of so many different areas and then this also means that you can interact much more easily with existing systems so often you have this friction of some new technology comes along and uh there's like tons of work that have to be done to sort of integrate it into your existing system so it kind of plays nicely with everything else but because the you know the way that one quote plays nicely with other things generally involves code of some kind well the you know it can write its own code it can do it for you and so it sort of makes the the interaction much much more seamless and, and quick to achieve so that's kind of one sort of bucket of things and a second one very quickly is the fact that you can sort of hook it up to other things um not just kind of to integrate it or whatever into a wider system but sort of so the level the point where the thing itself that you care about is what's coming in and, and going out of, of the algorithm. So say we're sort of answering physics problems, right? Uh -huh. The fact that now, you know, it's been shown that it's you know, super easy to, to hook up an LLM to, say, you know, a, a calculator is the obvious simple example, right? So it turns out that just like humans, LLMs are not that great at mental arithmetic sort of coming out of the block. However, you can give it a sort of a prosthesis of, of a calculator and it can learn to query the calculator and it can know when it's, you know, when it needs to do so and then get much better answers. And but you can take this to a much broader sort of area, right? So one paper I saw, I guess, last year now that I thought was amazing and also very scary, I think it was a DeepMind paper where they were training an algorithm on uh, answering physics questions. And they said, you know, here's how what it does if you just use the language model, you know, with train of thought prompting and, and various tricks that people have figured out are important. But then separately, let's take a, uh, a physics simulator 
So, you know, over the last decades, people have made all kinds of, you know, fancy software that is carefully designed to do particular tasks really, really well. And one kind of such software is a sort of physics uh, simulator, and which you just, you know, you sort of encode all the rules of Newtonian mechanics and whatever into the simulator. Right. And, and it's, it's doing something like... Uh if you do all this stuff to all these particles, uh, where will the particles end up? Yeah, um, exactly. Just that to, kind of thing. Yeah, okay, okay, cool. Precisely, Great. yeah. And so what the algorithm learns to do is you, sort of, you give it some hard natural language physics question. Um, it then learns to turn that physics question into code it can use to query the fancy physics engine, right? Um, and then on the other end of that engine, the engine produces some code as output, and then it can then read the output code, turn that back into natural language, and produce the answer to the original natural language physics question, right? right. That's um, a huge deal. And so that's, that's just massive, right? And you're seeing this all, all the time today with, you know, in sort of perhaps more prosaic, but, you know, really, really important areas like querying databases, right? Or, you know, all, all kinds, of, kinds of things. And so the fact that these are kind of in a similar way to humans, you know, we, we are, you know, our brains can do certain things, but they're way better when they have, you know, paper to write on and books to look things up in or, or the internet um, or friends to ask or whatever it is. And these models, they can do all the same things. And so it means that, you know, uh, it's just incredible the sort of, that they're unlimited almost in, in what they can do, but because they can access all these other things they can be extended so much more easily. Right. Yeah, I agree. That is huge. Moving on a bit to the thing, yeah, I, we're especially interested to talk about today. Um, there seems to be a huge range of views held by experts in these fields. I guess uh, economic papers, but also corporate research studies and government white papers. Yeah, about how big of an impact these systems will actually have on the economy. So, like, will all of those uses um, have real impacts? I guess not just on the economy, but also, uh, yeah, the labor market. So, whether it'll cause more unemployment or reduce people's wages or um, increase or decrease uh, income inequality. Um, and you, you wrote this great paper on which jobs are kind of most and least exposed to um, AI substitution. Um, so this thing where, yeah, uh, AI automates away certain uh, tasks. And yeah, I guess how that might affect people in different industries um, and in income inequality in particular. Um, and I want to find out how your views have changed since you wrote the paper. But before we do that, I want to dive into the paper in some depth first. Let's take things step by step. And actually, for context, uh, the paper you looked at the jobs that were most exposed to AI based on kind of just uh, the AI capabilities that uh, existed and had been written about in 2020, which is when you published the paper. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And in fact, like a tiny bit before 2020, because, um, you know, these papers sure, took a lot to write. because you wrote the paper beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's worth saying a little bit about sort of the methodology sort of very, very quickly. So yeah, great. there's a whole, there's like a whole line of papers that try to think about the impacts of um, like the exposure of particular jobs to particular technologies. And what they generally do is they say there's a bunch of sort of data on what's involved in particular tasks in particular jobs. So in particular, the US Bureau of Labor Statistics has sponsored for a long time this wonderful project that goes down to basically looks at every job in the economy and like writes down exactly what's involved in that job. Oh, cool. In a sort of standardized way. Yeah. So always papers all use that in various situations. And so you, you hand me a description of what a doctor does, say you know, sort of um, interprets tests to diagnose patients' condition, whatever, right? So what I do with that task description is I say, 
you know, it's very hard for me to sit around and sort of cleverly decide what's going to be automated because of some technology. Um, let's use sort of the hive mind um, and like much, much smarter people to figure out what's going to be automated. And a really good place for that is uh, the text of patent. So a patent, if you have an invention, you've got a patent saying, this is my invention, I might use it. And patents, what they do is, you know, there's many, many patents for, you know, every application of AI you can possibly think of. And so that means that sort of always inventors have done the hard job for us of thinking what's actually worth automating with AI. And because patents go back literally hundreds of years, the same thing has been done for everything from steam and electricity to, you know, more modern IT and robots and so on and so forth. And so you can kind of, you can sort of backtest the method and see if it works in, in some sense. Um, and a benefit of this is that patents are kind of forward looking. So at any point in time, you sort of follow a pattern today, um, basically before your invention is adopted. So I think about the, the, the 20 year adoption curve, whatever, for some technology, generally the pattern is like year zero of that or year minus three or five or something, right? So it, it is actually very forward looking. And so it means you're not sort of engaging in wild speculation, um, nor are you sort of asking people who don't really know much about automation or anything like that. You're sort of, you're going to the actual experts who have incurred a cost so it costs like 10 or twenty thousand dollars to file a patent so you would only do it if you're like quite confident it's actually going to happen so it's a way of sort of you can think of it as like you're sort of aggregating the forecasts of a huge decentralized sort of people in the actual economy who are really incentivized to make the right, right decision here about their forecasts. who are putting money on this bet they're yeah, putting right, money right, exactly right. putting money on the bet right so that was that was kind of my idea and I did this, but, but to be clear, there's other ways of doing it, right? So I guess the original, original way of doing it was you took, so when the, the BLS sponsored um, government people go and collect the data on tasks, they don't just collect the task word of all the, the sentence describing it in language. They also will have all whole kinds of other dimensions of like, does this task involve upper body strength? Uh, does it involve, you know, um, writing at the level of a college graduate, whatever it is, right? And so there's loads of these things. And so the very first kinds of papers that did this kind of exercise, you know, 20 years ago, they picked some of those dimensions and said, let's take this dimension as capturing what it is that software can do. And then what more recent papers have done. So there's a paper that came out very recently uh, by some folks at OpenAI and and some of their co-authors. And they basically got, they wrote down a prompt of like, here is what we think GPT-4 can do. And they got GPT-4 to go and read all the text, you know, descriptions of the tasks and got it to label them as to whether it, GPT-4, thought okay. itself that GPT-4 could, you know, substitute for these things, right? And they also had some human labelers and they compared the human labelers with the GPT-4 labels. Um, okay. But broadly, sort of, you know, asking people you recruit, I don't know whether they used, you know, Mechanical Turk or Upwork or whatever to sort of, you know, to find the human labelers. And um, you're generally getting kind of people who know they're sort of smart, but they're not generally domain experts in all the different domains of all sorts of an automation, right? So kind of the advantage of my thing is that you're actually relying on the sort of sort of the sort of skin in the game forecasts of actual experts in these areas and you can back test it but there's you know also plenty of kind of bad things about patents we have a long discussion about like why patents are a bad measure for this kind of thing um so there's kind of there's no one right or wrong method um and you sort of you hope that different methods produce similar results for the things you care about um or that that would be sort of that would be nice converging evidence uh, on certain kinds of impacts and indeed we see that in, in some things which, which we'll talk about in a second so a thing that had been done before was like looking at uh not just jobs but like the kinds of skills required for those jobs and then making educated um I guess, guesses about uh, whether technology has the skills to automate away those jobs or those tasks. Uh, And so you mentioned upper arm strength. And I guess that's like 
if some manufacturing jobs require upper arm strength and then you get robots uh, that like, I don't know, that are strong, <laughs> then uh, maybe it like meets the criteria for automating away that particular uh, job or at least like part of the job. Uh, and then yep. you like... Uh, you like can make predictions about how many of those tasks are going to be automated away by that technology. And then there's this other version um, where you're asking GPT-4 to actually make predictions about which tasks it's going to be able to automate away. But your methodology, which I think is really cool, looks at patents which basically require kind of domain experts, at least kind of experts, uh, to make predictions that cost some amount of money to make um, about what their technology is going to be able to do. And then I guess you do some sort of matching from like the text and the patents to the types of skills reported uh, as being required for these jobs. And then you're like reasonably confident because they're putting money on uh, that technology, uh, being able to eventually automate away those tasks. Uh, and so we think that those jobs with those kind of tasks are going to be exposed. Where exposed, I guess, just means like, yeah, at risk of being either automated away or, or having their jobs basically impacted by that new technology. Um, am I basically getting that right? Exactly right. Yeah. Okay, great. That makes lots of intuitive sense to me. Okay, so you said that you, yeah, you kind of came up with this idea and then you actually applied it to other technologies besides AI to, yeah, to figure out, like, does it actually capture the thing and then make the predictions that, like, line up with what actually happened? Uh, what technologies did you do that with and and how good did the, uh, yeah, methodology seem to perform? Yeah, so I did it with robots and software as well as AI, and that's what's in the paper. Also spent much of time doing it for uh, steam and electricity. Okay. It's not on the paper because um, there's a bunch more work to do uh, on that. And it's really hard because you're dealing with like very ancient archival documents that have to be digitized and stuff. But anyway, um, it's, it definitely is, is doable for those as well. And so for robots and, and software, um, it was sort of, it was pretty, I'd say like reasonably compelling in terms of um, what came out uh, as sort of what is exposed and what is not exposed. Um, so one example for software, you know, who's exposed parking lot attendants um so what do they do they go around and sort of you know record number plates and issue um you know tickets saying yes i've agreed to park here whatever like yeah that's exactly what software embedded in a you know parking machine whatever can do and so great of course software takes over that you don't really have parking lot attendants anymore or, or many many fewer and so um something that wasn't exposed was a, a barber or a podiatrist which makes complete <laughs> sure. sense because there's nothing software could do in in that and so in terms of in terms of ai this is where i guess it shows up that i'm looking at uh patents kind of pre-2020 so right people were sort of thinking very hard about what ai could do based on you know the current state of the art and what might be possible they hadn't seen gpd4 and so they hadn't they sort of generally hadn't patented loads of text-based stuff they've done a bit that sort of seemed plausible but they hadn't spent loads of money saying yes this is definitely going to be possible because we've, we've right. seen it and so um what i found was most exposed to ai were clinical lab technicians so people who sort of, you know, stare microscopes and sort of do visual interpretation of images. So that's, you know, AI can do that. Uh, chemical engineers. I got friends running startups that are, you know, using AI to automate chemical engineering. Optometrists. So optometry is, you know, one of the areas of AI in medicine, which is performing really, really well. Like it can just, it can just you know, do stuff with, um, with eye scans. Uh, power plant operators was a top one. When I was at DeepMind, uh, one thing we, we did was use AI to um, automate the cooling system of a data center. It's a very similar job, I think, to sort of power plant operation in, in, in some respects. And so that was just happening. And then the final one was dispatchers, taxi dispatchers. Of course, that's exactly what the Uber, the Uber, the Uber algorithm does. 
right? So I was like, I was, I was most pleased with with these exposed occupations because it sort of felt like yes, these are exactly the ones that sort of add up. And then the least exposed were animal caretakers, food preparation workers, postal service mail carriers, college professors, and arts and entertainment performers. Which again, all seem like pretty like things that AI is not going to do much with because they all very involve human interaction and they involve you know all kinds of other stuff, you know, physical labor as well. Often, right? yeah, interesting. Uh, those those make lots of sense. Um, but yeah, there I guess there's been loads of progress since you wrote that paper. So mm. very curious if you've had any big updates on specific jobs since the paper was written. For example, you might have said uh, fashion modeling isn't very exposed, uh, and then maybe Mid Journey makes it incredibly exposed. Um, yeah, maybe musicians soon, for example. Uh, yeah, what what have you what have been your updates? Yeah, so I guess there's kind of my intuitive updates, and then there's sort of what are people who have done, you know, sort of taken my method or you know, done similar things to my method, um, and sort of what have they found with more up to date data? And so this um, OpenAI paper that you know did something, um, you know, very much in the, in the same spirit as what I was doing, which was itself the spirit of what others before had done, uh, but you know, using these you know much more up to date sort of exposure descriptions, as it were, they, you know, not using patterns, they're doing something else. But um, they found. Uh, for them, the most exposed um, occupations to GPT-4 were interpreters, translators, journalists, poets, writers, mathematicians, court reporters, right? So very much things that like, yep, yeah, that makes sense. GPT-4 could do that. Um, yeah, it's interesting, though, because it does make sense now, but it doesn't sound like any of those were in in the paper from 2020, which I mm. guess highlights how quickly things changed, uh, how much wider the scope um, for task automation has gotten since then. And it's been three years. Yes. Yeah, too many forwards are like that these sort of large language models that just feel to me like a completely different thing to the AI that was being studied in 2018. Right. So those are some, I guess, specific types of jobs that might be automated away or that might just be like exposed and impacted um, by GPT-4. Were there like broader patterns? Yeah. So I think, so for me, the most interesting thing in kind of like my paper and also in the OpenAI paper, which um, they talked about, but sort of haven't commented on that much in the paper itself, is, so what I think these measures that, that we're both using... Right, they're very noisy measures. Like, there's all kind of errors that are going to be showing up in terms of particular jobs because of the, in their case, the way the prompt was written. In my case, because of idiosyncrasies of, of, of patents and and whatever. Right, and so sort of you're on slightly safer ground by taking a step back and doing some averaging. But is it any particular job, you know, there could be some noise. Um, but on average, you, you can sort of say things about sort of categories of, of job or, or people or whatever it is. So so I did a lot of work in, in my paper looking at, okay, if you sort of aggregate and just think about, you know, how does exposure vary overall on average as a function of, um, you know, how much education you have uh, or how much your job is paid currently or whatever it is, right? And so um, I, I found a really interesting pattern of results um, comparing AI to these previous technologies. So what I found was that, so think about a graph where on the x-axis you have uh, income uh, or salary for, for a job, right? So on the left-hand side, like very low paid, right-hand side, very high paid. And then on the y-axis, you have uh, how exposed jobs um, at that level are, right? So for robots, you have a line um, that basically starts high on the left and then goes down a lot. So it's very low-skilled jobs, so it's low-paid jobs that are exposed to robots, and high-skilled jobs are not at all exposed. Got it. The software, you have a very different pattern, which is that actually the lowest-skilled jobs are not that exposed and the highest skill not that exposed. It's the middle-skilled jobs that are most exposed. And what's cool is that this, this sort of reflects a pattern that lots of other 
very careful research in economics has found about the impact of software in particular uh, in terms of like it's really impacted middle school jobs. Empirically. Empirically, exactly. Like really careful studies, specifically of software, it's middle school ones are most exposed. Um, so it was like cool that I kind of replicated that in, with this very different method. That is really cool. And then, but the really interesting thing is for AI, it's a completely different pattern again. So for AI, um, it's actually the sort of upper middle scale jobs that are most exposed. So the line kind of starts in the bottom left um, at like a low level and then it goes up and up and up and up and it peaks, I think, at the sort of the 88th percentile of, of jobs as a, by, sort of by salary, right? So like really, really upper, upper income, upper, upper sort of high paid jobs and then sort of goes down at the very top. Okay. In terms of, so you know, the CEOs pay the most and not exposed so much, but the sort of the upper, the, the lawyers and the accountants, whatever, they, they actually are exposed. Um, Fascinating. And just quickly before we go to the story, the really interesting thing is that the OpenAI paper using a different methodology and focusing very much on GPT-4 and these new large language models, as opposed to the sort of a slightly earlier vintage of AI I was focusing on, they like kind of replicate this, this figure and for, with their measure. And it's basically exactly the same. Wow. So the same that's pattern. That's cool. Really validating. Now, actually, turns out that many of those jobs are the most regulated jobs. So the doctors and the lawyers and the accountants, they're the ones who actually have the most power in the economy and society to put up barriers and stop the exposure that might otherwise cause them to, you know, be paid lower wages or whatever. They can like, you know, pull up, pull up the drawbridge and stay, stay happy as, as they are. But on the sort of the pure economics of this, sort of before getting to the sort of political economy, um, this sort of fancy pretend, pretend world where there's, there's no actual humans and there's no politics, um, it's, it's those jobs that are, that are most exposed. Yeah. Were there any other findings from that paper that are worth pointing out? So I think, actually, there's, there's some different papers, some follow-on papers on the, on the sort of differential impacts um, across different kinds of people. So what my paper and this more recent one we're talking about is sort of there are different jobs and different jobs get paid different amounts on average and it looks like the sort of the the higher paid ones are going to be more exposed you might also ask though a given kind of job will have different kinds of people doing it right so um there'll be there are you know brilliant genius doctors and there are very novice ones who are just starting and don't know very much yet right for example right um are these different kinds of people going to be impacted differently by for example having access to gpd4 or something similar and so there's some really interesting papers that have sort of started to look at this experimentally so they actually get sort of a recruit real people and give them access to GPT-4 or whatever it is and see what happens. And so uh, my favorite one uh, of this, I think it sort of has been, it's like very well done and is like a really sort of cool experiment is a work by Eric Bing-Jolfson, Daniel Lee uh, and Lindsay Raymond called uh, Generative AI at Work um, from earlier this year. And they did a you know really big study in like real, in a real company and they got it was basically uh, technical support, sort of customer service chat agents. So sort of real humans typing over chat, guessing there's some sort of help button. They pressed it. They get the live chat with the customer support person. And they did an experiment where they were like, okay, sort of the control group doesn't get access to... Um, I think it was, in this case, it wasn't like they were giving them, hey, you've now got an extra window open on your computer, which is GPT-4 or ChatGPT. It's like, no, we've actually embedded it. We've built it into the software that's sort of helping you inside the chat system. So it's going to suggest things for you. Um, and you sort of click on the suggestion instead of having to write it out yourself. And so what they found is really interesting. So comparing the treatment group who have this, these extra suggestions from you know, GPT, whatever it was, um, versus the control group who just had the usual business as usual, is that there was a huge impact 
on the things they cared about in terms of, you know, uh, problems resolved per hour and how happy customers were, whatever. Huge impact for the lowest skill customer service agents, but basically no impact for the highest skill agents. Right. So the people so who were really already good, crushing it, <laughs> yeah, didn't yeah. benefit that much because uh, they're just good at their jobs. Because it's like, it's suggesting things... Yeah. Exactly. It's just the things you can you were going to do anyway. So like it hasn't helped very much. Whereas if you weren't very good, it's like actually improving what you're doing. That is a really cool result. Yeah. So my interpretation of that is that sort of in a world where it's sort of, you know, this is not low skill work, but it's sort of in the grand scheme of the economy, it's like relatively low skilled. And there's a kind of a performance ceiling. There's like, there's only so good you can be at like, the best you can possibly do is like, you can resolve the problem working with a, with a customer human, right? That's, that's the best you can possibly do. Um, so there's a, there's a real performance ceiling here. And like the high skilled are at that ceiling already. Yeah, right. And so what GPT-4 is doing or ChatGPT or whatever they were using, I'm not sure, um, is it brings the lower skill people up to that performance ceiling. That's why there's an impact for the low skill, but not for the high skill. There's another really cool paper that does something quite similar, very different actually, but sort of same sort of theme by I think two grad students uh, at MIT, Sakanoi and Winnie Zhang, who are really awesome. So this other one, they got college-educated professional people, um, they sort of recruited them on Upwork, Upwork or somewhere, to complete tasks like sort of writing press releases and writing sort of delicate emails and that kind of thing. So they unfortunately don't have sort of really good measures of prior ability. So for the other paper, they sort of had a huge track record of these customer service agents and like how good they were, like resolution resolved customer problems per hour or something. Whereas sure. for this experiment, they just basically had people self-report like, how good do you think you are at writing? Like not very good, quite good or very good, right? And what they found is interesting, again, you know, like fairly small sample size, but there was, there was basically no clear trend in the benefit of ChatGPT um, as a function of your prior, at least self-reported ability. So kind of the best people, best people sort of benefited just as much as the, the least uh, people who sort of thought themselves to be the least good writers. Right. So this might, you might think in this case, sort of, you know, writing a press release or writing an email is kind of, there's not so much of a sort of upper bar on performance. Right, there isn't the performance ceiling. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, um, like you can just keep making that press release better and better and better. At least there's probably some feeling, but it's like it's a bit. But it's much ahead. higher, and fewer people are already right at it. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that makes and sense. And for the context they were doing it in, like they weren't recruiting, you know, people who were literally the world's best press release writers. Right. They were recruiting sort of <laughs> right. random people who happen to be on Upwork, right? So it's sort of it's, that's that's an interesting sort of difference in the context. And then the sort of the summary of this stuff, I think, is that. Right now, we don't really know. We've got this like, really bit of interesting evidence in terms of where there's a performance thieving, you can really help the low-skilled. But, you know, I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence as well that people who are sort of, you know, really brilliant, particularly in sort of creative tasks, they can, like, have huge impacts with um, accessing these models. So taking um, software developers, for example. So it, you might think that, you know, it takes someone who can't code, suddenly they can code. That's a massive deal. That's like zero to one, right? So that, that's a huge improvement. But also someone who before, you know, maybe they were designing the architecture, doing sort of very high level sort of senior developer type work. And then they sort of had to have 10 humans actually implementing it. Maybe now it's like, hey, I do that work as a senior person designing the architecture. And now ChatGPT4, whatever, does all of that work that was on my humans. And so I now, as that senior person, am now like a hundred X more productive because I'm, you know, I've got the equivalent of like many people's jobs who have now been done for me and you just, you just need me. You don't need the other people anymore, right? Um, 
And also worth noting, I guess, a sort of separate point, which is that like a 10% increase for a, you know, a so-called 10x developer, whatever, is a lot more in absolute terms than a 10% increase for a more normal level developer, right? So kind of there's there's some mechanical sense in which if you're getting a percentage increase in, in what you're doing, then it's going to kind of the, the absolute size of that. This is a completely obvious maths point, but just sort of, I think it's worth making here. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's totally obvious. Yeah. The, okay, the size of that is going to be bigger if, if you're high, already yeah. high, more highly skilled, if you're getting that sort of that same percentage point. Uh, kind of like the, the rich get richer. Yeah, and 10 sort of, times 10 is bigger than 1 times 10. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Okay, to just kind of summarize some of these points. I mean, one thing that's standing out to me is just like, there aren't uniform effects on different types of skills or different types of jobs. Um, different kinds of skills uh, and different jobs will will actually be hugely differently impacted, depending both on that on like what the skill is, and also on like how skilled you are at that skill. And you're just going to get impacts going in all sorts of different directions. Yeah, I, I guess I I did have some simplistic. I don't know. Some some kinds of people will be unemployed. Some types of people will have their productivity go up. Uh, but it sounds like it's just like I'm picturing like a billion arrows going in different ways. Yeah, and and I, and I think so. We can sort of average out all these effects at the economy level and and get something. But absolutely, I think like at the individual task level, and the thing we were talking about in terms of like, are you a low performer or a high performer? Are you a novice or an expert? Like, I'm very skeptical. There will be a general answer at that level. Like, you know. For a given task, LLMs help the low-skilled more than the high-skilled. Like, that will not be something one can say about all tasks. It'll be very specific to different tasks, and the economy will sort of be evolving a ton in terms of talking about sort of demand impacts of, like, when you can de-skill a job, do you want even more of it? Um, or whatever. There's all kinds of things going on there, different incentives for people to use different labor in different ways. And a more general point here, actually, is uh, wherever there is the most displacement. So suppose it's the case that, you know, middle high school people with college degrees are the ones who are kind of, most of their jobs are being uh, being sort of exposed and possibly automated away. That then means that there's now this huge amount of people in the economy with these skills who are like, you know, need something else to do. So if you are an entrepreneur, you have a massive incentive to figure out how to make those people productive. Right, right, to invent right. jobs, ways of basically invent ways of using those people's labor to create value for, for the specific kind of skills they can that have. That they can do, but that GPT-4 can't do yet or something. Exactly. And that, that's always a sort of constant dynamic process where you'll create, as soon as there's people out there with sort of certain skills that, you know, right now those things are being done by GPT-4, but like they are still very skilled people. Someone's going to come along and figure out what can we get them to do that is very valuable and, and we'll will create value. Um, that's true whether we're talking about very, very low school people who, you know, can't read and write, um, whether it's like very high school people who've got, you know, PhD degrees and yet, you know, the research has to be done for them or whatever it is, right? Um, that's, that process is always, is always going to be happening. I think right now, there's a sort of, you know, really interesting point where it's like, G, in a sense, GPT, like what GPT-4 or whatever can do, like that's now the baseline. So like, as a human, what can you add on top? Right. right? And so it's like, what are you adding on top? You can imagine, so here's a thought about software engineering, right? You can imagine this kind of sort of hollowing out the middle of software engineering. You can imagine where suddenly it's possible for much lower skilled people with less training, less experience to create the kind of software that took a person who was on, you know, 150,000 pounds a year before, right? 
Um, and you sort of suddenly, the thing that's bottleneck that the humans are actually doing is like they have the context. They've done the user interviews to figure out what we should build next, right? But then the skill of actually writing the code is done by the algorithm for the most part. And they're just sort of making sure the tests are the right tests and things are working as they're supposed to do and whatever, right? So you've kind of, you've really de-skilled that and like, you have like many more people who need much less training to do that kind of software engineering. But then at the other end, you might say there's also a different kind of people who like, you know, add a ton of value on top of what GPT-4 can do. Because maybe right now, GPT-4, you know, it can only reason about a code base of a certain size. And it doesn't know everything about sort of exactly what cluster setup you've got, whatever. And so you're having that kind of architectural thinking um, or slash, you know, all the sort of the managing of all these lower skill humans needs also people skills slash the interaction with the sort of the business side of your company um, and what the their objectives are and sort of translating that into um, the traditional sort of product manager type skills. So you can imagine all those kind of things being like more high end now and like you're adding a ton on top of TBD4 there. And so that suggests a kind of there's, there's more low school demand and more high school demand of a slightly different kind. And I think you'll see something like that everywhere. And the sort of one of the key questions is like, if you're good and you can use GPT-4, like what can you use like a thousand assistants who are better than you at the thing you currently do? Like how would you orchestrate them? And if you can do that, you know, you're now very productive and like the scale of orchestration is kind of the hard and difficult thing and you're doing that and that's going to be, you know, really, really valuable. Very valuable. These feel like ways that the economy is going to like smooth things out in the labor market. Are there, are there any other kind of effects like that you expect to see? So I think there's one kind of more macro thing, uh, which is kind of very much sort of more historical, which is to do with the overall pattern of, of inequality over time. You might think a technology comes along and the technology, you know, it can do either one or two things. It can increase inequality or it can decrease inequality. And what the historical record suggests is that it's not as simple as that. And the same technology over time can, you know, increase at one point and then decrease at, at another. So there's uh-huh. this brilliant work. Do we have an example of that? Yeah. So, well, it's, it's not a specific, it's not so much like one technology. It's more sort of the industrial revolution, I think, okay. you know, in Britain in the 19th century. So there's an economist called uh, Robert Allen, um, who wrote a very famous paper called Engels Pause um, uh, a few few years ago, 2009. And he makes the point, lots of, he's an economic historian and lots of very careful measurement, basically showing that inequality increased a lot uh, and kind of workers kind of lost out sort of the the, sort of the the share of national income that was being captured by people doing, you know, wage paying work, labourers, um, kind of really went down over time. And the sort of the, the share of, of, of the output that went to sort of the owners of capital uh, went up. But then at some point that reversed and inequality decreased a lot. And so the workers sort of caught up. And one story for what's going on there is, you know, at the beginning of a sort of period of vast technological change and automation, and there's like lots of sort of adoption going on, like what concretely is adoption? It is companies investing money in order to change their production processes and figure out how to use this new technology and then actually paying the money to get it, right? Sort of buying the new equipment or the software subscriptions or whatever it is. Sure. And so at that moment, suddenly capital, which is to say sort of, you know, people who've got spare money sloshing around that then can be invested. Um, so, you know, companies will borrow money or they will, you know, issue stock to raise money or whatever it is. That is um, suddenly becomes really in high demand. And sort of because you you invest capital and you get these wonderful returns on, on the capital because you're now doing this huge amount of automation, whatever it is. And so 
those gains uh, flow a bit more towards the people who have the capital because sort of the thing that is scarce, the relatively more scarce and more important is the capital because it's like, it's, it's like really expensive to do automation and there's like these huge gains to be had from automating and therefore the people who sort of have the scarce resource, which at this point is, is sort of money floating around, the spare cash to invest, um, they get the benefit of that. But then over time, you finish doing all of that, capital suddenly becomes sort of less less scarce, the automation, all that stuff's been done. And at the same time, all these entrepreneurs have come along and figured out, hmm, we've got all these machines doing this other stuff. Like, I figured out some ways of now making, in this newer world, making workers more productive. Yeah, right. And if more productive, they're kind of, they're going to get paid more um, under sort of standard conditions. And so that means that workers then now start getting paid more and the economy sort of rebalances and readjusts and you're sort of back to where you started almost in terms of inequality. And this, by the way, is over like, I don't know, a 50, 100 year period. So these are like very, very long-term historical stuff. Longer run effects. Yep. Yes. And so I would not be surprised if we saw something similar uh, today with AI and maybe it'll, it'll happen, all happen faster, but I think it's quite possible you'll see something, something similar. Cool. So... I want to move on a bit um, and get into some of the specifics about uh, the shortish term. Um, so what might happen while AI systems are you know, increasingly capable, but before we have AGI, we don't know how long that will be. Maybe it's just the next few years. Maybe it's five to 10 years. Maybe it's longer. Um, but I'm interested in this partly because... Yeah, I mean, for one, it's easier to make uh, predictions in the near term, and especially when uh, the state of the world will more closely mirror uh, things that we've seen before. But also just because um, even if the world might look really crazy once we get to AGI, I'm still personally very curious about what the transition is going to look like. Uh, there's this thing I'm often tempted to do, which is just like, imagine what the world's going to look like when we have AGI. Like, that could be insane. But like, if you like took that away uh, and assumed that uh, AI's abilities would be capped before AGI, things are still going to be really remarkable and different. And I feel like it's easy to ignore that like just very soon those things will start to impact our daily lives. I mean, they clearly already have, but um, mm. but probably more and more. And so, so I want to spend some time focusing mm. on that. Just to say first, like I completely agree that I think if we stopped all all development of bigger language models today, right? So GPT-4 and Claude, whatever, they're, they're the last things that we train at that size. So we're allowing lots more sort of iteration on things of that size and all, all kinds of fine-tuning, whatever. But like sort of nothing bigger than that, right? No no sort of bigger advancements. Um, just that, what we have today, I think is enough to power, you know, 20, 30 years of, you know, incredible economic growth. I think it's sort of, you know, this is this is certainly, Huge. you know, feels like as big as the internet, right? Uh, already. Right. Like cool. Okay, that actually is a really helpful comparison. So yes, you know, we're, we're already in an exciting place. Yeah, great. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page about that. Um, and actually, I wasn't totally sure we would be and I trust your judgment on it more than mine as the uh, labor economist. But yeah, I guess to to get really concrete about what that's going to look like, it seems, I guess, intuitively obvious to lots of people that um, if a technology like this suddenly comes along and it can do uh, lots of jobs better than humans can, um, then the people who had those jobs uh, are going to find themselves unemployed very quickly. So I'm curious. Uh, I think actually that story is like at least maybe wrong, despite the fact that it's uh, kind of a natural uh, thing to think. So I wanted, yeah, I wanted you to uh, to tell me why that's wrong. Or at least why it might be. Yeah. So I think there are 
lots of different ways that it can be wrong. And those ways are all like really interesting. So we should sort of spend some time talking about them in, in a bit of detail. Um, Great. So there's a, a few sort of buckets of, of explanation or, or sort of conceptual points to make here. The first one is around this idea that, oh, if, if some jobs get replaced by, by technology, then the people who did those jobs, they are just thrown on the human slag heap and there was nothing for them to do. And we're all like immiserated and, you know, is, isn't that terrible? And, and all we need is we sort of, we need to urgently move to, you know, a UBI system or, or whatever it is, right? But sort of here is the story as to sort of why that is not necessarily true and why the history of the last, you know, I guess the entire economic history pretty much of of humanity so far, um, that that hasn't happened. Why why is it? So the first point to make is let's take the following scenario. So right now we all spend a decent chunk of our income on food, let's say, right? Let's take let's take food. Think about food that you sort of go and buy in the in the grocery store. So maybe every every week you go and do your weekly shop. Right, and maybe you spend fifty pounds, maybe spend a hundred pounds. Who knows, right? Uh, and so, over the course of a month, maybe you're spending, I don't know, three or four hundred pounds, right, on on groceries. Let's say it's four hundred pounds. So now, suddenly, suppose that some amazing technology, automation technology, comes along, and all those people who were, you know, driving tractors and managing farms and driving lorries that, you know, move things around the country and around the world. And, you know, all the people working in food processing plants and, you know, all, all those things, right? They're all fully automated just tomorrow. It's amazing. And those jobs have all gone. And um, it's all done by these incredibly much, much cheaper, um, you know, robots and algorithms and who knows what. So I, there's all kinds of clever vertical farming going on, you name it, right? And suddenly... That means that the actual cost of producing the stuff, you know, before you were paying all these salaries to these humans, and now the LLM is doing it for free, um, or virtually for free, right? So what was your shop of £400, right? Maybe now it's gone down and it's £50, right? So this this is obviously a sort of silly accelerated example, but sort of um, suppose that's the case, right? You did a huge automation and you've now, everyone in the country, they were all spending £400, now it's £50. So what does this mean? So, okay, we've, on the one side, we've got a bunch of people who sort of, who are now don't have jobs, apparently, right? Sort of all the, the farmers and the tractor drivers and the food processing workers and so on. And also though, every single person in the economy has now got an extra 350 pounds per month in their pocket, right? So their jobs haven't changed, right? Everyone else in the economy is doing the same as before. Everything else is like, the only thing that's changed is now food is cheaper. So you've all now got an extra 350 pounds per month in your pocket. So what do you do? Well, you tell me, I guess. So what would you do? I want um, more other things. Okay. <laughs> I probably okay. don't want more food because uh, mm. probably I'm eating enough food. But I probably want to spend that 350 on, uh, I don't know, a nicer flat. Or or actually, maybe I want to donate. That'd probably be good. But still, mm. I probably want things that other people could could create for me um, with, yes. with that more yeah additional money. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So um, let's just go through those examples, right? So you said, uh, well, you said probably not food. So I actually suspect that you might actually want more food, but you'd go for fancier food. So you would now go to restaurants much more, sure. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. And the restaurants are now going to be, you know, kind of what you're paying for is the fact there's a sort of, there's a wonderful chef who, you know, is, is from a certain town in Italy who sort of hand rolls <laughs> the pasta every morning. And so you're, you're sort of paying for actually a much more human intensive form of, of food than, than what you're getting in Tesco or whatever, right? Um, or maybe you are um, saying, you know what, I'm going to work on my mental health. And I was just paying £10 a month for a Headspace subscription. But now with an extra £350 a month, I can afford a therapist. Two therapists. 
Two therapists. And so, again, that's, you know, now extra demand for, for new jobs that didn't exist before. Now, a couple of other things that are a bit different, right? So um, you mentioned, funny enough, you said, oh, I might get a better flat, right? So that's really interesting because... Flats are these inanimate objects, right? There's, sort of, there's, there's no sort of labor involved in, in sort of a, fat, a flat sort of continuing to exist. And they just sort of exist and they sort of sit there. And in a world where, you know, we probably won't get into sort of the, the housing theory of everything on this podcast, but sort of, there's a whole bunch of important things to say about the way that land and housing is this like really important weird thing in the economy that explains lots of other things. And the sort of the way that's coming up right now is the fact that if everyone suddenly starts saying, I've got my £350, I'm going to spend on a better flat. If everyone thinks that, right, then all that happens is the price of flats go up. Like you're in the same flat, just now you're paying more for it, right? Um, and so what's happened is, um, so where does that money actually go? Well, it goes to your landlord or your landlady. So uh, what's happened is that there's, there's basically been a wealth transfer, uh, a resource transfer to people who own these assets. So there's been asset price, what, what economists would call asset price inflation, right? And these landlords and landlords now, um, I guess they're the ones who are spending the extra money. So it's, it's there, you know, do they want to go to fancy restaurants or whatever it is, right? But and it's still the case that someone is spending the money somewhere. And the final thing you might do, by the way, if you have an extra £350 per month, depending on, you know, how old you are and, and your maybe your preferences over leisure and labour and, and so on, is that you might say, you know what, I'm going to work fewer hours because... Yeah, that sounds great. I, you know, I'd, I'd rather have the extra day off a week or whatever it is, right? And so if you're not saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to work fewer hours, and like, if, if everyone does that, then suddenly well, there's now a whole, like, that extra day that you were working, like, someone has to work that day now. So again, you've created extra demand for labor. And so um, this is happening, you know, everywhere in the economy in this sort of automation scenario, right? And so what's happened is this particular bit of the economy has been automated, wonderfully more productive, amazing, but, you know, also these jobs have disappeared. But the sort of what cannot help but happen um, at the same time, it's like an iron law of economics. The money that everyone make, has making has to go somewhere. And it goes on basically empirically, historically, where it ends up going is towards goods and services that are more human labor intensive. So you're actually creating more jobs directly. So it's this kind of feedback loop in the economy that is, you know, a really, really important first order thing um, that happens when you have these kind of productivity increases. And because humans and indeed houses um to your point about about flats because these are the things that are scarce yeah the llms there's you know unlimited quantities of them um we're the things that are scarce so you know sort of law of supply and demand the thing that is you know in in sort of limited supply the, the price goes up right right and so that's the thing where you know suddenly all of our wages go up a bit and everyone's you know everyone's got more stuff so that's the kind of that's like the good story right that, that's and that's broadly what has happened over the last 200 years. That's why we are all in these weird jobs that did not exist 200 years ago. And we're all much, you know, healthier and hopefully happier. Right. I don't think I fully like internalize the extent to which this does just happen constantly and has happened over the past few centuries. And like, like, obviously, we're not doing the same jobs as people were doing 200 years ago. For example, a fact that I read was something like uh, 60% of the jobs that exist on the US labor census today didn't exist something like, I don't know, 60 or 80 years ago. Mm. The exact numbers are probably wrong, but um, it's something like that. And that's pointing at this general thing happening loads in a way that is just really not obvious to me unless I think about it. Mm. I guess this AI case seems 
different uh, in that it might happen even faster. Um, and the like amount of automation that's possible might be more extreme. But at least in the, well, at least for now, when we're talking about like, can, can automate some tasks, but not uh, the vast majority of them, it does seem like if you look back historically, the kind of thing that happens is this like shift to an economy that, yeah, where people are doing different sorts of jobs over time uh, and not one where there's like mass unemployment. Yeah. Am I getting that picture kind of right? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And the reason that happens is because as things get automated, the sort of the amount of goods being produced in the economy, you know, are, are going up. And what's by definition? If they weren't going up, why why would you automate it? And so you find goods about going up and surplus human labor and demand for that labor because people can afford to spend. Right. And so that ends up getting allocated to, you know, ever more productive or useful uses that you know, serve human needs. And to your point around, you know, um, this happening for a long time. So my favorite example is, um, again, I guess I started with agriculture and, and food, right? So let's think about agriculture in US example, in 1790, 1790 in America, 90% of jobs in the economy were on farms. 90%. <laughs> right. Today, today it's 1.7%. And it's amazing if you look at the sort of the, the graph of this, sort of, you know, on the x-axis, you've got time and the y-axis, you've, you've got percent of jobs that are on farms. It's a surprisingly linear it's a straight line from 90% in 1790 to close to, I don't know, 2 or 3% in about 1960. And then it's sort of, you know, it can't go much below that from that point to, to today. So it's tells me a bit, but it's, it's very, very linear um, and very steady and very slow. Yeah, I think in my head, it was something like decreased a lot at once as like new technology, like a like a, a couple of important new technologies were introduced. Uh, and then that like automated a bunch of tasks away. And then those jobs stopped really existing. And those people kind of moved on to other things slowly. Yeah. But I guess if it's linear, I don't know, I guess it, it makes me wonder if the whole process is actually just like smoother than I'd imagine. Yeah. Okay, so you said there were a couple of things that can happen that mean we don't necessarily get mass unemployment. And it sounds like this is one, the economy kind of uh, shifting in response to these changes in like the availability of certain kinds of labor. Um, what, what are other kinds of things that can mean that you don't get this extreme unemployment effect? Great. So that first thing was a kind of very macro, this sector of the economy has no humans anymore. And those humans all end up doing other things in other sectors of the economy and possibly new ones as well. So a second thing is, okay, but let's, let's still just look at this one sector that's getting automated and think about whether it really is the case that when you have big automation in the sector, the number of humans go down. Again, that's intuitive, right? You know, sure. automation means for your humans. Done. Turns out it's not that simple. And so there's a few uh, examples, I guess I'll start with, then we'll sort of, we can talk about sort of what the broader lesson is. So here is one example. I think this is due to uh, Jim Besson, who, who's an economist, who studied ATMs. So ATMs, you know, where you cash machines, right? You go to a bank branch and get, get cash out. So before ATMs, there were individual humans in the bank who would like, you'd go up to them and show some ID and get your you know, account details and they would give you some cash, right? And bank tellers, I think they were called. And you would think, right, ATM comes along, that's it for those people. You know, no more bank tellers, huge declines in employment in the banking sector. Right. And what in fact happened is something quite different. So the ATM did indeed um, reduce the number of people doing that specific task of handing out money, right? But of course, there are other things people do in bank branches as well. The big thing that happened is that because a given bank branch no longer needed to have all these very expensive humans, you know, doing the, the, the cash handing out, it became much cheaper to open bank branches. And so, huh, okay. whereas before there were only bank branches, perhaps in, you know, the sort of larger towns, or whatever, suddenly, banks were competing to open branches everywhere. Because 
you know, the more you can, you know, go into the, the smaller and smaller towns and, and whatever, you know, villages, who knows, you can, you know, have more customers and provide a better service and, and so on, right? And so what happened was the ATM meant there were fewer staff per bank branch, but enabled the opening of many more bank branches overall. And that actually offset the first impact, right? So fewer staff per bank branch, but so many more bank branches that the total number of people in bank branches actually went up, right? What they were doing was quite different. The humans now are doing sort of more higher value add activities. They're not handing out cash. They are right. doing other kinds of services. But, you know, similar people doing a similar-ish job. Um, and there's actually more of them now, right? And so the sort of the fancy economist way of putting this is it's, you have a sort of a demand elasticity in the presence of complementarity. So there's this crazy <laughs> silly words, but this is exactly what I mean. Yep. So Demand elasticity means when you reduce the price of something, you actually want more of it. So what automation generally brings a cost of things down. But what normally happens, he's like, great, I'll have the same amount of stuff. He's like, no, I want more of that stuff now. Give me more, 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 more. Then in the presence of complementarity, that means that, um, so complementary, we think of, you know, if humans are complementary to the automation, the, the technology, whatever it is, in some way, right, there's still some humans involved, like fewer than before per unit of output, um, but still some. Sure. Then, because people now want more and more and more of this stuff, it's sort of each unit of the thing is more automated, but there's still some humans involved, and therefore you end up possibly having ever more humans um, totally demanded, doing slightly different things, but still roughly in the same ballpark. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Okay, here's another historical, but somewhat more recent example that I think illustrates this point really interestingly. So let's think about computers. And think about computers in, I think, the 1980s. So the, in the 1980s, as I guess at many points in history, Britain was really worried about its productivity. And it was particularly worried about its productivity compared to uh, other countries. And at some point in the 1980s, it was very worried about um, compared to Germany, because Germany has like way better manufacturing and so on. And we were like, why are we so rubbish at this? And so okay. there, was a, there was commissioned a series of, of studies by NISA, which is the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. And they did a bunch of uh, really fun studies. So they sort of sent a team to go and look at exactly what was happening inside uh, a set of matched plants. So you'd find like a furniture manufacturing company in Germany and a one making the exact same or similar product in the UK. You go and visit both of them and say like, what is the same? What is different about these two plants? And do that for a bunch of different you know, areas. And okay, so they were kind of like, basically, it turned out that in every possible industry they looked into manufacturing, Germany is more efficient. And they were like, well, let's, let's try hotels, maybe in the service industry, Britain is better. And but hotels and same thing was true, Germany is much better at hotels. Um, and there's a particular like, it's, a, it's almost a throwaway anecdote that I think is really interesting about hotels in Germany in the 1980s uh, from this study, which is that um, they were looking at the use of technology in lots of different areas, you know, throughout these studies. And they were looking at in particular then the use of computers in, in hotels. And there's a very striking conclusion they had, which was that in the UK, sort of hotel managers saw computers as a way to keep the quality of service the same, but be able to employ a less skilled person to provide that service, right? So it's like before you had to be able to, I don't know, read and write really carefully and, and manage records and whatever. And now all you have to do is like, you know, press a couple of buttons on a computer. So, yep. right, okay. So you're basically reducing the cost of the labor. In Germany, however, they were like, aha, no, no, no. We can use computers to have the same humans, but now providing a much higher quality of service. And so you sort of generally have, you know, you always have these options as a um, 
person you know running a company and which you will choose will depend on all kinds of interesting strategic factors so so thinking i guess ahead now about automation i'll I'll give you two sort of contrasting examples so supposing that gpd4 whatever makes salespeople much more productive so now you know your your salesperson one salesperson would bring in you know ten thousand pounds of sales um and now they bring in you know fifty thousand pounds of sales if you're the sort of the ceo of this company are you like, great, I can keep revenue the same and cut my sales force by, by five times? Or do you say, I'm going to 5x my revenue? I'm pretty sure most people would choose to 5x their revenue, right? Um, so that's a case where sort of the elasticity works such that you're like, great, give me more, right? Steve like, give me more. However, think of another example. Suppose you are a, a you know, one of, one of those, you know, private equity owned care homes, right? They, so they, they, buy, they buy a care home, they sort of try and cut costs and, you know, make them more efficient from a sort of capital point of view. Um, perhaps with sort of, you know, not entirely full regard for, for some of the people living in these homes, the sort of, you know, the elderly people living in them. And you're like, okay, supposing that as of now, GPT-4 can in some way make nurses twice as productive. So maybe maybe it does all of the prescribing and all the sort of admin type tasks that nurses have to do. What does the manager of the get home do? Do they say, great, I can now keep all the nurses and they can spend much more time with patients? Or do you say, great, I can fire half the nurses and provide the same quality of care? Probably at least some care homes are going to do the second thing, right? And so... I guess the broader point here is it sort of it can go either way, and generally you'll have you know some companies that choose to prioritise quality and compete on quality, um, and others which choose to prioritise cost and compete on on lowering costs, um, and both those things can happen at the same time in the same industry with different companies, right? Yep, yeah, that that makes tons of sense. Um, really, really good examples. Yeah, was there another I don't know kind of effect that's not just like unemployment that you wanted to talk about? So the final thing I think it's really interesting to think about, and is not often not intuitive, is thinking about the impacts on individuals, right? So we've talked about, we've accepted that there definitely could be some individuals who are, you know, whose jobs existed, and then they don't, they sort of they disappear because they're being automated. That, 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 you know, nothing I've said so far is saying that doesn't happen. That, that certainly happens a ton. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've given you some examples of why we shouldn't worry so much perhaps about it because there's like more demand than other bits of the economy, whatever. But like, what does that look like for the actual person experiencing it? Um, and is it, is it good or bad? And, you know, when is it good or bad? And so there's a couple of like really interesting facts about the way things kind of work in, in the economy that I think are, are worth touching on briefly. So the first one is that there is this not very nice term, but it's, it has, has a sort of benign consequence. So the term is natural wastage. Um, so if you are if you're a company and you're you're hiring people, so let's, let's say you're you're McDonald's, right? And um, you're McDonald's, and and people sort of leave. You know, the average tenure is they start working for you, and six months later they leave and go and get be- get a better job, right? Yep. So that sort of half of people leave within six months, whatever. Um, that's called natural wastage. People are sort of naturally leaving, um, and you would include people retiring and whatever as as well as part of that. Um, also natural natural churn. So that means there's a sort of very natural. Uh, attrition happening in, in all companies all the time. And so supposing, let's take McDonald's as an example. So if McDonald's somehow automated everything, like the burger flipping and the cashiers, and other, <laughs> they've been trying for a long time, right? They're, they're sort of slowly happening, but there's still some humans there right now. Um, supposing they, sort of, they, they did it, right? All they would have to do is stop hiring any new people, right? And within a year, they would just have no employees because just within a year, everyone naturally leaves and goes and get a better job anyway. That, that generally is what happens. <laughs> right. So the, the average tenure is, is like six months at McDonald's. Okay. Um, so you just sit, sit and wait and everyone, everyone goes of their own accord, no firing 
required. No displacement required, right? And so you see this happening at a, a sort of much more macro level in a really interesting way. So one study that I did a while ago was looking at um, manufacturing workers in the UK between about 1990 and, and 20, 2010, I guess, and looking at what happened at this time when there was a you know, huge reduction in manufacturing employment in the UK as a, a sort of result of a few different factors. Like the biggest ones are trade. So like China's producing the same stuff that we were producing, but, but cheaper. Um, and then also automation. There's a lot of automation happening as well of different kinds. And what's really interesting is if you look at the, the age profiles of who is working in manufacturing, uh, and ideally you would, you would sort of trace individuals over time, which I was, I was doing, doing a bit of in some other areas. Cool. And what happens, what's really interesting, okay, so here's sort of some astonishing facts. Um, I know, these numbers could be slightly off, I'm remembering them as it was a while ago, but sort of, they're sort of directionally correct. Sure. Um, so the, the number of uh, people who are age 60, or okay, let's say 55, okay, so people who are age 55 working in manufacturing in the UK... So let's say 1990, number of 55-year-olds working manufacturing compared to 2010, number of 55-year-olds in manufacturing. At this time when the total number of people manufacturing is, is maybe it's, it's going down by some enormous percentage. I forget exactly sure. what, right? But like it's, it's huge, huge declines. Um, the number of 55-year-olds actually goes up over this time period. It increases. The number of 25-year-olds goes down 90%. Wild. Okay. Right. So you see what's happening there? Can I can I actually just guess what's happening? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me. Okay, so it's something like people that are like kind of young and deciding uh what field to enter are like, I'm not gonna enter that one. That's a dying industry. Uh there's a bunch of manufacturing, China's doing it, that seems dumb. I'm gonna go into something else. And then older people that were already in the industry they're like they've got loads of career capital there they um they're like good at their jobs and they like keep doing it and they end up being kind of a larger proportion of the like share of workers uh in that field um as they like get older so like fewer people enter but they just like stay in it and uh and like do a bigger proportion of the jobs available is it something like that that is exactly it. Exactly that. Cool. Right? And it, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because if, if you're sort of the, 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 the mastermind organizing the economy and sort of allocating people to different jobs, like, obviously that's not what's happening. But like, if you were the mastermind, um, you would choose, it would naturally be the right thing to say, look, people who've got all the human capital and they've worked in the industry and they're going to find it really hard to, to move, let them keep the jobs. Um, and then the young people, they shouldn't get into it because that's a bad bet for the long run. They should do something else, right? And obviously, you know, people sort of make those decisions for themselves and that's what happens. Yeah. So you have these, you know, really, really interesting uh, effects of, of that kind. The same thing, by the way, happened. So we talked a little bit earlier about farm uh, jobs in the US, right? And one thing I've, I've done is I've kind of plotted. So you can, you can really, it's amazing. You can sort of, you can link people over time in the census. Um, so every 10 years, there's a census. They sort of count every person in the entire economy. This goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And you can link people over time. And you can also um, see their occupation. And so you can see, you know, who is kind of staying in, in being a farmer, uh, who is leaving, right? And what's happening is if you trace, so at this time over, you know, more than, a, I guess, 200 years where people are, um, the percent of people working in farms are, goes from 90% to whatever, 1%. Over that time period, every single cohort of people are you sort of just, you know, people who are born and start working, the sort of the percent of a given cohort working in farming only ever goes up its entire time period. People sort of start working in farming and they sort of, they live their careers there and they, they're happy, right? And so fewer people start every single decade, but people who are sort of still in it, they stay in it. So this happens on this huge long micro timescale. And so to again, bring it to the future or think about the future, um, you know, who today is thinking, 
I think being a taxi driver is going to be a great plan in a world of self-driving cars, right? Probably not, you know, fewer people today are thinking that than 20 years ago. Um, or who's thinking, I know, suddenly all the press, whatever, five years ago about radiologists being automated. Who's thinking, for my medical specialty, I want to be a radiologist. Um, now, the, the really cool, ironic, interesting thing about this is that this can have this really funny short-term effect where the technology is promised. Everyone updates to say, oh, these jobs aren't going to be there anymore. But it takes longer than expected. And so people stop moving into the to the field. But it hasn't been automated yet, which means that actually wages go up for that field. There ends up being like a shortage. Oh, wow. Yes. And there was a short, there was right now, I believe, last time I listened to this, there's a shortage of radiologists. Um, and like, you know, I'm sure there's many reasons for it. But like one, you know, very interesting story you could tell is people are forward looking. Why should I go into this? But it hasn't actually been automated yet. So there was a shortage of humans. So the, the big macro thing is, is that. So older people stay in, young people sort of move and do different things. That's by far the most important individual level effect. So those are two very rosy pictures yes. I just painted for you, right? And so the, the, the final thing on this point, sort of the, the third point, which is, it is a less rosy one. That was is, sounding a bit too good to be true. Yeah. So, so I think like most of the, what I just said, like that, that is true. Like this, this is what happens. This is like sort of the majority of what happens in the economy. And it's why people generally have you know they have jobs and uh, they get paid more over time um for for you know, in their work now where does that go wrong it generally goes wrong in uh, in a couple of sort of circumstances namely it's very inflected by geography so what we know in terms of like where can you go and see people who have like actually really been hurt by a automation technology coming along or or maybe a other kind of effect. so trade as a big example you know china comes along suddenly makes things cheaper um if you are a young person in a big city and you were doing some job um then and you know, that, that job goes away whatever loads of other jobs yep fine you're going loads of other options go do something else if you are a a older person um, who's been at a particular firm for a very long time in a town where that firm is the only large employer and there is no other industry in that town, and and also like you've got this amazing like union job, like your wages are really high because of you know decades of you know strong um, you know, sort of like worker uh, empowerment and so on, um, and then that that company goes away from that town. That is not a good place to be because empirically people turn out to be stuck in their towns, right? They sort of they just don't like moving. And if, if you're like in your whatever age, forties, fifties, got a family, um, kids are in school, and your job, go, job goes away, own your it's house. like exactly yeah. in school. Yeah, it's like what I you know your house is now worth nothing, so you can't because because there's no jobs anymore, so like, you can't sell like you can't sort of sell up and move somewhere else. That's that's really hard. You can't sort of sell your cheap house and move to a much more expensive house in, in a city somewhere else, right? And um, your kids are in school, as you're saying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what you see is people sort of they kind of get stuck, and there is no um, no job of any like comparable uh, quality that they can do. And so there's you know on average when you have these these sort of big plant closures, um, people do tend to go and get other jobs, but they often experience big wage declines, like twenty five percent sort of enduring wage wage decline. That's not nice. That's really horrible. Yeah. That's a really horrible wow. thing to happen to someone. Yeah. And that can happen, you know, that sort of happens to large numbers of people at the same time in these sort of geographically concentrated ways. Um, that's where things get, get sort of get bad. And so, like, if you're young in a city, you're kind of fine. Um, if you're older or, you know, sort of mid-career older in a small town with a single employer and that's the thing that gets automated, that's when things look much less rosy. That can be terrible. 
Yeah. And I guess I do feel like uh, those stories come to mind for me more than uh, more than the other stories. Uh, I guess just because they'll be newsworthy. Like, Person leaves job, gets other job. <laughs> it's like no headline there, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, I thought, sorry, an interesting thing, here's, here's my, I guess, natural optimism coming, coming through quickly on this point, which is that thinking about large language models in particular, right? Like what they automate is generally cognitive tasks. And cognitive tasks... I've not actually looked into this carefully, um, but my strong hunch is that they tend to be clustered in cities. Well, I guess you find some examples of like a a call center that is placed in some kind of, you know, random middle of nowhere city um, because there's, you know, lots of sort of cheap, cheap labor and not many other options there. You see bits of that, um, but it feels like sort of it's a bit less common than these sort of previous cases where it's like a particular factory that made something and like it was in this village for a, it was a coal mine and like it was there because that's where the coal was i, I think these today there's like ever more you know urban agglomeration and so on yep that makes sense so some foreshadowing about the fact that uh, ai might have different kinds of effects than um yeah than technologies that have been worse for people who like exactly. couldn't move how quickly do these adjustments typically happen? Uh, because I'm wondering if one of the reasons that it's, uh, I guess, so smooth uh, in many of these cases is because, you know, technology gets rolled out slowly. Um, whereas in the case of AI, the rate at which AI might automate different tasks um, seems seems pretty quick. Plus, AI seems to me like the kind of technology that doesn't intuitively uh, require a bunch of physical infrastructure to be built. So I don't know, like the way banks and ATMs did. Does that mean that, yeah, these adjustments where people go find other jobs uh, just like won't happen quickly enough or like keep pace? Awesome. So I think maybe the right way to approach this question is we can start by very quickly talking about like what's the baseline? Like how long do these things take for like other technologies that like were as big as AI, um, as AI seems to like it like will be? And then we can talk about, okay, why might AI be different? And, and what will be the same? Yep. Right. Okay. So... So the two big examples that are, um, I guess, everyone's favorite are sort of IT, sort of computers in general, and then electricity. So these are probably the two biggest general purpose technologies of the last, certainly, you know, 150 years. So how long did, did they take? Well, there's an astonishing sort of regularity in how long these things took. So if you um if you date the arrival of electrification to 1894 which is the the time people uh, economists who study this uh, tend to use i think it's a couple of years after the first sort of proper power station was was uh, was built okay and if you date it to 1971 i'm not sure why economists use that date maybe it was when i don't know some sort of ibm mainframe properly came online or something i'm not sure, sure. anyway so those are the dates people seem to use in in economics right and if you plot the sort of if the x-axis is sort of years following the arrival of it or electrification and then the y-axis is percent of adoption that's happened so zero percent like no one has it 100 percent now everyone has it right yeah it turns out those two lines sit exactly on top of each other so it diffused Wild. basically as fast as electricity so it's a point one surprising fact number one is that like these things that were like 100 years apart almost took as long as each other, um, even though you might expect things to sort of be moving faster later in history. And the second interesting fact is that it took a long time. So it took uh, 30 years to get to 50% adoption. 
Yeah, that is much slower than I would have guessed, I think. Yeah. And these things just move really, really slowly. And this is true both for sort of households adopting technology um, or getting access to these technologies and also for, um, you know, industry. Uh-huh. And so we, we, I can, yeah, we can tell you all kinds of interesting things about sort of how, how long uh, it took. So like one sort of, I guess, final quick interesting fact. So if you think about all technology and capital in, in the economy... So I guess take take the US, right? So think of like every, you know, bit of factory equipment and uh, every computer and everything you might think of broadly as, you know, technology, capital, equipment type stuff, right? Um, the time, so starting in sort of 1970, so 1970, there was basically, you know, close enough 0% of the capital stock consisted of of software and computer equipment, computer hardware, yeah, hardware and software. Um, in 1990, it had only got to about 2%. And then by 2000, it had got to uh, 8%. So and the, the real inflection is sort of about 1995, if you sort of look at, look at the graph. But the point is, there were sort of, you know, there were two and a half decades of like, actually, very, very slow, where everyone thought like, right, this is it, we're here, IT era, right. go. And, you know, 25 years later, nothing to see. And only, right. you know, after 30 years, do you sort of see a real increase. And even then, Right. So even in 2000, uh, only 8% of the capital stock consists of computer software and equipment. Yeah. And was most of the thing happening in that early period, like the technology improving or was it just like the technology being incorporated into the world? And like, yeah, the world catching up in various different ways took took that long. Very much both. Very much both. Oh, okay, okay. But think about technology in the 70s, right? So compared to like 1990s, like the, the IT was getting ever more user-friendly, ever cheaper, you know, you know, Moore's law was happening all through this time, right? So you, you wait a few years, it gets twice as fast and half as expensive. Um, right. So that's happening. And you sort of, people just wait a long time to get to the point where it's actually worth adopting. And it takes a long time for sort of companies to adjust all their operations to make good use of, of, of this stuff, right? And we'll, we'll say more about that in a second when we sort of think about LLMs. Another example, actually, which is interesting, is the automation of the sort of the telephone system. Uh-huh. So, so generally, like, you've seen these photographs of, like, generally women sitting in, these, in front of these huge panels and, like, connecting calls, right? Plugging, plugging different calls between different numbers. Yep. So the sort of the automated version of that was invented in 1892. Okay. However, the number of sort of human manual operators peaked in 1920 so 30 years after this um (laughs) at which point at&t which is like the monopoly provider of this is the largest employer in the u.s right they are the largest single employer in america 30 years after they invented the complete automation of of this thing that they're employing people to do and the last person who is a manual switcher does not sort of you know lose their job as it were that that job doesn't stop existing until i think it's like 1980 so it takes 90 years <laughs> from the invention of full automation to, to um, the sort of full adoption of it in a single company that's a monopoly provider and can, you know, it sort of is in charge of, you know, can, can do what it wants, basically, right? And so the question perhaps you might have is like, why yeah, on earth? Yeah, what the heck? Why, why is that happening? Why is it taking 90 years? So it's to do with a few things. So one is the extent to which when you start using humans in the system, you build everything else around the humans. And so the humans are generally doing a sort of a bundle of different tasks. Um, and the switching is the, it's kind of the most important one, but it's kind of, it's one among many. And you end up having to sort of do a ton more 
sort of corporate process reorganization to be able to do the automation. And that takes a long time to sort of to unwind yourself from the world where everything goes to this human because there's many more things happening than just a switch that's been switched. Um, and then the second thing is that, so this is, yeah, both of these are very generally applicable. Second thing is that it costs money to switch from a manual exchange to an automatic one. And, you know, money isn't free. And if, if you're a company, you are going to make investments that, you know, make economic sense and not do the ones that don't make economic sense. Um, and, you know, so the way it worked in the case of AT&T was in the really big cities, you know, think about the, there's a fixed cost of automating any particular telephone exchange. The exchanges, you know, are physically located in different places. The telephone exchange in a city is going to have, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of wires coming into it, right? And so it's like, by switching that to automated, you save loads of humans. Whereas always even exchanges in the middle of nowhere, like in much of all rural areas, right, they um, might only have one human, you don't save much by switching, but the cost of doing all that change and equipment is actually still really high, there's a huge fixed cost. And so you don't bother doing it yeah. until you really, really, really have to. And so if you look at the history of AT&T, they started by automating these big cities. And the very last thing to be switched over to sort of um, from human to automated was this like, I think it was on some island somewhere, like a tiny, you know, tiny population. That was <laughs> okay. just like the last thing that was worth doing. Right, that makes sense. Right? Um, and so... This is, I guess, a sort of a good, interesting segue into sort of, you know, why large language models and AI in general might be the same or might be might be different. Great. Um, yeah, let's start with the ways they might be different. And we'll come back to the ways in which they're actually similar. So how might this new you know, breed of language models and AI in general um, be different in terms of how long it takes the economy to adopt them and what that means for, for the economy and people's jobs? So um, I think the first really interesting thing is that... These large language models are general purpose, like from day one. So, you know, you, you train GPT-3, GPT-4, uh, Claude, whatever, and out of the box, it can do marketing, it can do writing emails, it can do science, it can do everything, right? Coding, um, yep, yep. Coding, yeah, 100%. Um, and generally in history, so like, you know, the PC, when the PC first came into existence, it could do like, there was like one killer app. Which, do, do you know what the killer app was for the PC? Because <laughs> it's a fun bit of trivia. I don't. And I'm actually surprised you used this example um, because I would have thought they were more general purpose. But what, mm. what was the killer app? So they are general purpose in terms of like, in theory, they can do many things. But when, the, when they're first created by their creators, uh, you know, in, in quotes, you know, they're sort of, there's only going to be so many apps, right? So think about, the, I guess, quick side note, the iPhone when it first shipped in whenever it was 2007 was it like there was there was no app store right and it, it had a right. calculator and you could like had visual voicemail or whatever like couldn't do that much other stuff sure um, it's not the internet that was a big deal i guess it was only a few years later when suddenly it could do literally anything you could think of and there were thousands millions of apps on the app store that it became the sort of very general purpose thing the iphone hadn't changed very much what had changed was the number of applications that would be built on top and so the same thing was true with the PC. So the PC, um, when it's, you know, was first kind of quote invented, you know, it was this sort of huge box, whatever, and it was very expensive. And like, why would you want one? What would you do with it? Um, you know, there's no internet back then, whatever, in the, in the 70s. And um, so the, the first app uh, actually was, uh, was VisiCalc which is uh, a, it was like the first spreadsheet app, as far as I know. So people who sort of are going to bother to spend lots of money on a computer, because um, I guess you had a, a typewriter existed, right? So sort of the word process is not that much on top of a typewriter. This is a much bigger, fancier, cooler, newer thing. 
Exactly. So 1979, Physicalc um, is launched for the Apple II, okay. um, which is this, you know, one of the very early Apple uh, Apple computers. Um, and like that was the reason a bunch of people first bought computers was to use Physicalc. Huh. And it took an absolutely, you know, a ton of time before, you know, everyone wanted to have one um, because it could do, you could watch movies on it or you ever had to have email or whatever it is, right? So it just takes a really long time to figure out how to sort of how to get the most out of the general purposeness sure of it right and i guess that's taking years in these cases decades yeah. okay. in these cases before lms came along ai was pretty similar because sort of to make it useful you had to sort of go and collect all your training data um and you know for a very specific application of like recommending youtube videos um or you know text-to-speech right or like alpha exactly. fold like protein folding it's like just that and it's like exceptionally good at just that but just exactly that. Yep. Yes, and it takes a ton of time and effort and risk and money and expense to to make each single application, right? Even though in principle it can do many things. So what's different about LLMs is kind of because they trained it on everything, uh, as it were. They sort of you know put the entire internet and who knows what else um, in the training data um, out of the box. It can do all these different things. You sort of it's it's kind of much 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 quicker and less expensive to get it to do different things. All you have to do with like your limit is only your imagination of what right. you might ask it. Creativity. Right? So yep. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the first reason that this time is different. I think um, it's sort of it's so much more capable uh, and useful out of the box at so many different things. Yeah, it does seem like people are like taking some time to figure out that you can plug it into all of these other apps like calculators. Um, but it's happening over the course of months, not decades. Yes. And and the way that you figure out whether it can do something is you, you know, open up GPT-4 and you type in the prompt yeah. and you spend 0.04 cents. Right. And it's like, I kind of wonder if you can do this thing and it'll just figure it out for you. And maybe exactly. the answer is no, but often it's yes. And then it does Yes. It. <laughs> and you, in particular, you don't have to raise tons of money from investors and recruit a team and whatever, which you would have had to do to build a software application for a fairly computer, right? So it's nearly free. Yes. So it's nearly free and um, very general purpose from, from day one. Okay. So that's, that's sort of point one. Um, second thing that occurs to me is... So we talked just now about how when AT&T was automating their uh, telephone exchanges, they started with the, the big ones. And over time, only you know later do they get to the smaller ones because you pay this upfront cost of a fixed cost of switching over, um, which means you really have to have big scale to be able to bother to use it, right? So to, to, make, to make the switch. And so, yeah, in general, automation requires scale. I think uh, generally for LLMs, you can get real value from them with basically no scale at all. So you can be a, a, a one-person whatever, and you can start using it in your day-to-day life. You can adopt it yourself as a, as a consumer almost, as a sort of producer-consumer, uh, and use it, and it's, and it's useful straight away. And that's basically because the fixed cost of it is already super low. It's like you can get a subscription to GPT-4 to use it as much as you want, basically. Uh, yes, very little cost so you can do that have exactly. all the benefit or like have most of the benefits and uh you're not like building i don't know server farms to like run the thing that's like basically done and the only cost you is tiny exactly um and indeed you might one way of thinking about this is that kind of there's a massive fixed cost of training it for everything but like OpenAI already paid that they paid it <laughs> yeah, once for yeah. everyone and it cost them hundreds of millions of dollars whatever right but like it's paid now and it's therefore the marginal cost for us all is tiny 
which means that you, you can then adopt it throughout the economy. And then because of the, the first point of it being general purpose means that, yeah, loads of different people can adopt it basically instantly. Um, and it's also just like much cheaper for, you know, any company that's putting it into a production process system. I think, you know, that it's not trivial, but it will be generally much easier than doing a big software upgrade or whatever. So um, this next point is around normally most kinds of automation, new technologies require huge complementary changes to be useful. So there's a classic example of this, which is back to electricity. Um, there's a great article called uh, The Dynamo and the Computer uh, by, by Paul David, which sort of makes this point, which is in order for electricity to sort of have its impact on the economy, like a ton of stuff had to happen. So like, obviously you had to like actually lay out a power grid. So you either sort of, everyone had to either get their own local generator or ideally connect to a, you know, much bigger scale. So that's that big fixed cost thing. That's a yep. huge infrastructure fixed cost. Okay. But then beyond that, so I think about all these factories making, at this point, I don't know, bicycles. What, who, knows what, who knows what they're making, right? Um, yep. And they are all set up to be running on steam power. And that generally means that you sort of, you stack the factory vertically um, for reasons that are not worth going into. Um, and they're, often you're, they're going to be, they're, these things are, are in city centres um, and there's all kinds of things to do with the fact that they're running on steam um, that affect their design. And once electricity comes along and the dynamo uh, and things which you know convert electricity into, into motive power, it means a few things. One, it means that your location is is often much uh, easier. You don't have to be in the middle of a city or near a river or, or various things that affected steam power. Also, it means that you do not have to have this sort of funny vertical design. And in fact, do you you're mean better that off literally, literally, like think about vertical farms, right? A sort of they're like very sort of thin and tall. Like that's how factories were designed in the UK. Okay. And you go to Yorkshire, you see all these like very tall, um, tall factory buildings. Okay. Uh, for, for this reason. And so with the uh, electric motor, suddenly you can bring um, the energy to the machine and put the machine wherever you want. And when you can do that, it turns out that the best design is actually a, um, a entirely large sort of flat horizontal. Um, it's like, because, you know, moving stuff up and down this vertical thing is like, it's loads of energy is like, move, like really annoying. And so um, you want a, you know, much bigger factory that's on a single floor and you're going to have a completely different layout for your machines. Your machines all need upgrading obviously as well and in, in, in various ways. And this all means that, it just takes a ton of time to make all these changes. Because in particular, when this new electricity thing comes along, you've got all these factories running on steam. And like, they still work fine. Right? They work. Okay. They're, they're profitable. <laughs> they're making the products and you're selling them and it's all fine. Um, and so if you're like, okay, just, I just made this fancy factory for steam that's based around steam power. You're telling me that I can build a new factory somewhere completely different. There's going to be like a huge capital outlay, you know, expense of building a brand new factory in a different place, a different design, different machines. Like, sure, maybe I'll do that in 20 years time. But like, I just built my own steam factory and like, it's working. So I will, you know, get the investment payoff from doing that. And then maybe if right, you're lucky, get the I'll value d- I can from it. Exactly. Then I'll start and turn my, turn my attention to this other thing. Uh, and so this is another reason you sort of, you, you just wait. There's like the time for the, the, the power to be spread around the country. Um, insofar as you sort of waiting for the power grid, there's a time to like wait for your existing investments to pay off from the steam, which might be 20 years. Who knows? Right. Um, then you have to wait for sort of generally everyone else to try it first. So you sort of make sure that it works before you take the risk of trying it. And this doesn't seem like the case for AI. Um, it right. doesn't seem like 
if GPT-5 comes out, uh, there's no reason for me to keep using GPT-4. I'll just switch. There's there's no cost. Yes. So so within, I guess, sort of vintages of, of GPT or AI, there are uh, definitely, I think, you know, relatively limited costs of switching. I think they're not zero. Um, I think that sort of your, your prompts will be carefully designed and tuned for whatever, right? So you'll, you'll have to, um, if you've got a whole system running on these sets of prompts, you might have to, you can't just like upgrade everything in one go. You have to test each thing and make sure it's still working in the way everything thinks and whatever. Um, but I think there's a more interesting type of sort of upgrade which is from not using any gpt to using it for the first time right sort of so you're adopt you're going from you don't have llms in your company or startup or whatever it is to suddenly uh, you're now using them a lot um and so we've talked about how for the other technologies it's like it's a big deal to switch from steam to lsd and a quick story so i uh once uh talked to someone who was some kind of you know fancy senior person at like Deloitte or KPMG, one of those kinds of big four accounting companies. And he was talking about, uh, I mean, one thing these companies do, or some of them sort of, I guess, the more sort of IT consulting ones is they help companies with big IT transformations. So like moving to the cloud or, you know, upgrading your software, whatever it is. Um, yep. And many companies, particularly the, the big enterprises of this world will run, they'll sort of, they'll be really deeply um, sort of embedded with, embed with uh, software that goes under the name ERP, so Enterprise Resource Planning. So Oracle is, is one of the big ones, um, sort of all your finances and the whole company runs on this single big bit of software. And so the, the, the story this person told me um, was that this, this company itself had recently tried to, I'm going to make up the details, but they, they tried to upgrade from Oracle version 13.1 to Oracle version 13.3. Um, and, uh, the thing I remember he said is that this upgrade, which failed or was botched, that that attempted upgrade cost every partner in the firm a Ferrari, um, sort of of puts it into sort of stark terms, right? Which is to say it's really, really expensive to change software in, in companies, in enterprises. Partly because the people designing the software, they deliberately try and build them so it's hard to to switch. Like they're called sort of switching costs is the word people use in sort of, you know, software, you know, the, the SaaS industry, whatever is you sort of make it hard for people to switch away from your from your bit of software by sort of embedding And that's yourself. from like one company's software to another. Yeah. And my favorite example is like, I think there was an Australian bank that so these banks often they're very old companies and um they you know they adopted it fairly early so they have these like mainframe computers that sort of everything still runs on right from the 70s or who knows when and these mainframes are written often they're involving like programming languages for sort of bank business logic that were big in the 70s but like no one knows anymore so I think um, COBOL is an example of one of these languages um, that is like millions of lines of, co- of business critical code present for many enterprises in COBOL. And like, no one knows COBOL anymore. You know, people, you can learn it, but like, it's, it's, Never heard you of can't it. easily hire a COBOL engineer. Um, and so switching from the big bank mainframe to a sort of wizzy fancy new thing um, into the cloud, whatever, is a massive nightmare. So this Australian bank, I think that the story I read was like, it cost them like more than a billion dollars for the IT upgrade, right? <laughs> oh my God. Which sounds insane, but like that is how much these things cost. That is why it takes, you know, 50 years for IT to be adopted because that's the kind of costs that are involved. Um, you have to like retrain your entire workforce. You have to rewrite millions of lines of legacy code. If it goes wrong, like that is a complete catastrophe for your company because your customers suddenly you know that the money appears to disappear from their bank account uh right or they can't access the money whatever it is like it's the stakes are really high so that yeah. just means the cost goes up and up and up and up of making these these kinds of changes 
So what's different now? Well, LLMs, they speak any coding language, right? Um, so just imagine you're now this Australian bank and you were being like, oh my God, I got to pay like, you know, a million dollars a day to hire these, these fancy COBOL coders to translate all of my old business lang- logic from COBOL to whatever new language it is. That cost has now just disappeared. Can be done out of the box by GPT-4. Because GPT-4 speaks these languages, it can just like get rid of all this friction. Like it's amazing. Um, I don't think people have sort of, you know, had enough experience with this yet to actually start experiencing that at a sort of meaningful scale. Um, but I think it just represents, um, you know, one, a huge opportunity to any startup building, uh, you know, sort of SaaS software, which before would have been impossible to persuade anyone to switch to you because it would have been too expensive. Or man, it's going to be way cheaper now. And also in terms of training, it's also now much easier and faster for you to sort of use LLMs to help you build for example, interfaces that look just like the old one, um, even though your new thing is under the hood, right? So it's very cheap to build all kinds of, you know, new bits and bobs and customizations and whatever, because LLMs make that basically free. Um, and it wouldn't have been possible before because it would be too expensive because the programmer's time being too expensive. Now you can just do it and everyone can make their own interface, uh, whatever. It's, it becomes so much easier. So that is, a, I think, a huge, huge reason why LLMs will be be adopted faster themselves and also cause faster adoption of like everything else. Of other technologies. Right, right. Cool. Okay. So part of it is just like they speak uh, like the languages we speak. Um, and so learning them is like learning how to incorporate G Claude or whatever into your workflow is much easier than learning uh, Excel for the first time or something. But also uh, it can help you engage with Excel better. Uh, so you don't have to like yeah, learn Excel. I mean, probably, yeah. Excel is maybe the wrong example, but... Well, no, no, seriously. So take like Excel, right? Suppose some fancy new version of Excel comes along, right? If you're a big company, you're, so, so you're an investment bank, you have all these analysts who work 12-hour days with their fancy Excel spreadsheets, um, and they've got all these custom VBA macros they've all written to do certain calculations, <laughs> whatever, right? Suddenly... All those custom VBA macros can be converted into whatever the new thing is, like instantly, as opposed to taking months and months and years and years. Yeah. Okay. So Excel's a very good example, in fact. Yeah. Great. Great. Okay. So there, there's two kinds of effects, um, and it sounds like both of those um, create again disanalogies between AI and previous technologies. Exactly. Yeah. Are there other disanalogies? There's one quick point I want to mention. The okay. analogy is that you often start by you know, automating very tiny things and, you know, a very specific process that has some input and some output. And you're like, right, I can keep everything else the same and then just change that process, right? But the real benefits of almost any new thing generally come when you take a step back and you're like, you know what? Now this thing exists, I can rearrange everything. So back to the example of steamed electricity, you can, once you completely rearrange the factory floor, actually that means that not only do you sort of not have to sort of, you know, carry things upstairs the whole time and downstairs and all that time, but you can do loads more stuff for sort of, you can suddenly have assembly lines, right? They become possible. You can have assembly lines. Um, and that's a huge productivity improvement, right? An example that Eric Brynjolfsson, who's an economist um, who thinks a lot about these things, likes to use is, what do you think about a sort of uh, a watch, right? Um, think about an analog watch versus a digital one. When we, quote, automate the analog watch, what we do not do is take each individual cog and say, let's take this cog and replace it with a sort of digital cog. Right. No, you, you completely reimagine the whole thing from the ground up, right? And it, it just looks completely different. Right. And so the question is, what does a business uh, or you know, e- economic activity uh, that has been reimagined from the ground up uh, to take account of what LLMs can do, what does that look like? One big way that I feel um, LLMs are, are sort of different than before is they 
Uh, it's possible to take humans out of the loop in very interesting ways, or at least to have humans not be a certain kind of informational bottleneck. So if you think about the CEO of a company, right now the CEO of a company, the way they get information is they either go onto the, the factory floor or the, you know, the retail floor or you know, sit in on a customer, whatever, whatever the company does. Right? They, sort of, they, can, they can get some sort of anic data by just sort of randomly sampling a bit of real thing. And then that's, that's sort of bucket one. Bucket two is they can, they get these sort of reports written for them by, you know, endless hierarchies from the bottom level to the top level. And sure. every time the report goes up from the sort of sub, sub, sub manager to the sub, sub manager, um, it's sort of information is lost and things are summarized and that they're made to look better than they really are and things are hidden and you can't spot patterns or whatever it is, right? So now. Once a business is running entirely, um, as it were, with LLMs sort of involved and sort of all information is in the cloud and, and so on, suddenly, like, just imagine, what if the CEO had the personal experience, like all the information from every customer service agent, every salesperson, every machine on the factory floor, right? Suddenly, all kinds of, you know, innovations and, and sort of more sophisticated strategic thinking um, and, you know, better operational management, all these things become possible. When I was in government, I, I really, really felt this because, like, you know, you were sitting as I said, at the top. It sounds, you know, fancy, but it was like it was the bottom. Really, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so you're sitting at the top and in, in number 10 or wherever. Or, okay, here's a question, right? Like, how much AI research is the UK government currently funding? The UK government does not know the answer to this question. No one's bothered to go and label every single grant application with the word AI or not, right? And these application systems are all in completely different systems and different research councils and bits of government funding agencies and whatever it is. And so, you know, I asked this question and like, you know, it took like three months and we finally got a sort of an answer that was, you know, a good attempt given the data available, but still was nowhere near a sort of, you know, sophisticated answer to the question that you would you know, you'd want to have to make a good decision on, on various things, right? Um, you know, that's even in a world where sort of everything is already already sort of digitized and in databases. Is, is the human labor required to go and sort of read every grant and label it as AI or not, whatever, right? Yep. Whereas now an LLM can just like a CEO or you know senior person who cares about you know allocation of resources can ask that question and instantly you know the equivalent of you know hundreds of thousands of of human hours of labor of carefully going and reading every possible application for for funding whatever can just happen and that really changes the nature of decision making. <laughs> right. um, decision making. Yeah, and yeah, it also yeah. really changes the power of people at different, like, the really interesting sort of organizational sociology stuff here because, you know, people in the middle, middle managers have lots of power because they can hide things from the higher ups, right? Um, and <laughs> okay. they, they can, you know, present things as they want them to be seen. And if, if the sort of the more senior people can suddenly, they can like ask the LM a question and it's like, it will read everything from you know, every customer service chat or whatever it is. Like that's not going to lie. Um, you know, assuming it's set up right. Another question, but uh, in theory, that's not going to lie. And you, suddenly, you can do all kinds of things you couldn't do before. So I think that that's the way in which again, this is going to be really different from other technologies. Um, you know, again, there's there's analogies and disanalogies. IT certainly made centralization much easier because suddenly headquarters can sort of keep in touch with all these distant places much more easily than before. Uh, or sort of I, you know, information and communications technology. Um, I think this this is kind of like, this is the whole nother level of that, which is going to be like absolutely fascinating to see what happens there. Great. Yeah. Okay. So that seems like a lot of differences, um, which, yeah, I'm, I'm just really having this feeling of like, does it even, at this point, does it even make sense to try to draw analogies from uh, previous technologies? Um, but mm. I guess it sounds like you think that at least some things are similar and that maybe, well, I don't know, you'll, you'll tell me how much those things matter. What will make... Uh, 
AI similar to other technologies that have been kind of, uh, I guess, general purpose, um, big game changers? Yeah. So I think there's two buckets. There's a sort of humans are humans bucket, and then there's like the government bucket. Um, okay. So let's start with the government bucket. The government bucket is, is basically regulation. So I, I put in as a broader bucket, sort of just call it collective action. Um, so government is one kind of, you know, societal wise collective action, but there are other things like um, unions and professional bodies and all this kind of stuff, right? Sure. So uh, here's a question. Do you think that in 10 years time, so it's a long time, 10 years time, you'll be able to just talk to a language model and it will prescribe you a, you know, prescription only medication, which you can then go and collect from a, from a pharmacy. Like, do you think that'll be legal? Because by the way, it's possible today, right? Sort of, it's good enough. Basically, we're there, right? You can do that already today. It's going to be good enough. Would it be legal? Yeah, I guess as soon as I start thinking about it, I'm like, uh, there are a whole bunch of interest groups uh, that are going to want that not to happen. There are some interest groups that are going to feel worried that it's going to make mistakes. Um, There are interest groups that are going to, yeah, I guess just want to want to be protecting the people in the jobs that are doing that now. Uh, And so it seems at least plausible to me that people somewhere will decide uh, that we shouldn't make it legal. Though, I don't know, in 10 years, it also wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. Mm. Right. So um, you're absolutely right. In the sense that, so there are these very powerful interest groups. And so, you know, some of the areas that we're most affected by AI that we all agree, I think, seem very likely to be better are things like what the doctors do and what the lawyers do. Uh Doctors and lawyers uh, separately have like the most powerful lobby groups you can possibly imagine, <laughs> right? So yeah, like the right. American Medical Association, the British Medical Association, um, and then for lawyers, you know, like it's the bar, the bar council, the you know, various solicitors thing, right? So, um, so here's one thing that happens. They do all of the kind of professional standards for that profession. <laughs> of course. And they right. decide who gets to be a doctor. Um, and they decide how many doctors get to be accredited uh, as doctors every year um, or lawyers, whatever, right? And... So if you just you know, open a newspaper, basically any, any day of the week, and you will see how powerful doctors are. So another example is like, you know, you might think, sure, it's obvious, right? The sort of video consultations are just like, you know, more efficient and better for patients for most things most of the time. And like, we should just like have them as an option. Um, it literally took COVID to go from doctors saying it's completely unsafe to allow people to have these remote calls. It's like, it's not okay. We shouldn't allow it. It's banned, right? To, oh shit, like it's any option. I guess we have to do it. And then now it's like, okay, everyone now does these things. Um, well, it's, it's much more common, right? Um, but they were able to block it, essentially. Like the, the government couldn't make them offer e-consultations. And, and the government tried to and failed for many years, I believe. I'm not an expert on, on that exactly. And so, you know, similarly, you know, lawyers um, are very good at manipulating the law, as you, as you, as you might imagine. <laughs> that's, that's, that's me, that's, that's unfair. Yeah. Um, they, don't, they don't make them more, obviously, um, in terms of, um, you know, the but still they're, they're very very influential and so um yeah. they are the sort of gatekeepers to this this kind of work and they make it literally illegal for you know my think why didn't a startup come along and just like do it you know online for free and it's like well no it t- turns out you can't do that because uh, it's literally illegal and they're the ones that make it illegal uh, in, in practice and so you know regulation has always been something that is kind of regulation by the government slash um collective interest groups um so unions whether they're sort of you know blue collar unions or whether they're you know professional white collar workers uh which sound like they're not unions but they really are unions um, um <laughs> right they don't have the word union in the title but they definitely are unions uh, they're very 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 powerful and so these really really slow down all kinds of applications 
possibly for good reasons a lot of the time right um yeah sort of open open question in for any given question you know whether whether we should or shouldn't slow down the application um given the harms involved but like they are always going to argue for no you need the human completely in the loop and we shouldn't change anything and we should keep our salaries the same and so on and so forth right um (laughs) so you might think that doctors are going to be hugely changed by ai and maybe it'll sort of bifurcate into a job that requires much less medical knowledge and much more empathy sort of closer to a nurse um and sort of you just you the, the doctor kind of uses gpt and interacts with it a lot more right on the one side and then sort of a smaller number of like very 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 specialized people who somehow are even better than gpt4 at medicine which if that's possible i'm not sure right and so um <laughs> is that going to happen um and if, if so that feels like it would be a good reason not to go and assume we're gonna yeah if you wanted to sort of have a nice steady well-paid life being a doctor might suddenly seem like, well, you're kind of choosing to be a nurse now than a doctor. And there's a sort of, there's a different kinds of career paths for certain people, right? Right. Um, and that's the dynamic we talked about earlier, where people that don't have the skills yet uh, might have, well, fewer incentives to be like, I definitely want to be a doctor. And then I definitely want to lobby hard for AI systems not to replace doctors. They're just going to be like, seems possible that AI might at some point replace a lot of the tasks that doctors do. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to like go into this like adjacent profession that does seem like there's going to be loads of demand for it. Exactly. And so what? So one, that might happen. And in addition, it might also be the case that the doctor's union is successful at preventing any change. And so this this change does actually happen. And so you have like fewer doctors going into the profession and no AI enabled, you know, diagnosis and primary healthcare, whatever. And so everything actually gets, gets sort of it's slowed down and gets worse because of the interaction of, of the automation and the regulation, right? So I have no idea what's going to happen in any particular case, right? But I think we can be extremely sure that there's a ton of interest groups that are going to be pretty successful for a pretty long time in stopping things changing faster than it's in their interest for them to change. Yeah. So point here is AI is not immune from this. In fact, anything is so salient, it's going to be extra subject to this. And as we, you know, we're sort of hearing, there's ever more talk of regulation of these models, right? Yeah. And I guess there has been things in, I guess, Italy is like, uh, no, GPT-4 is like... And they, they banned it and then they've unbanned it, but... Oh, they've yeah. unbanned it now. Okay. But that kind of thing, uh, yes. I guess that's just an example of a thing where like that kind of thing will happen. Exactly. The, the, I think it's distinguished between like, what might slow down the progress of the frontier models, which is what a lot of the sort of the chatter is about um, sort of right now. I'm mostly talking right now about forget like, whatever the frontier thing can do. Is that going to actually be used in the economy? And like, that is a very different question because the doctor's union is going to get in the way of that. So that, that's kind of, that's sort of that huge bucket that I think is like, and we could talk for a long time about that. And it's to say, it's like, it's really, really, really important. Nothing has changed there. If anything, it's, it, the sort of people are stronger before, right? So, uh, that, that's that. Okay. Then other bucket of kind of humans are, humans are humans in terms of the way they make decisions. So I talked about how LLMs can sort of make it easier to retrain, but you still have to like want to retrain, right? Or do things differently in some way. And so think about teaching as an example, right? Sort of LLMs could completely change the way classrooms are run. And the teacher will spend much of his time marking and maybe lecturing and more time giving one-to-one support, whatever it is, right? Now, you know, maybe teachers want to do that. Maybe they don't. I don't. I imagine most of them would want to do that, actually. But one thing I'm quite sure in saying is that there is no way the government will be able to force teachers to start adopting this software and using it in certain ways. The teacher is like master of their classroom, right? Um, and there's been many examples of, you know, governments wanting to make teachers do things differently. And generally, it's very, very hard. I mean, occasionally, I don't know, like phonics in the UK, sort of things sort of can change in certain places. But like, in general, uh, teachers unions have a lot of power and the government cannot control what happens in classrooms. And so 
that again applies in lots of different places. Um, so the stronger the union, the, the more it sort of more it applies. Um, but in general, humans don't like change um, for the most part. They like things the way they are. Right. And at least you know if you're doing a job, and like learning new things is like kind of scary. Um, yeah. It sounds like you're actually using Claude quite a bit. Um, I'm I'm using it some, but like. I could totally be using it more, uh, except it's like kind of aversive. I'm like not exactly sure how to do it. And so there are some things I'm just like not bothering to learn, like how to do like a particularly good prompt to like figure out what my interview questions should be. Mm. And like, I don't know, I'm pretty curious uh, and like open to change. Mm. And loads of people are, I think, are even less open to change than I am. Um, So yeah, that does make sense that when you look at uh, humans actually on an individual level, they are less excited to learn new things um and especially have those changes like imposed Imposed, on them um then then we can just like imagine and it's often more than just a sort of a change to what you're doing that has bigger sort of second order consequences so for example suppose you're a teacher and you've sort of spent years making these amazing you know whatever ways of teaching things and mark schemes and like you always do your marketing from 6 to 7 p.m and then after (laughs) dinner whatever and suddenly like your entire life has to be completely reorganized because oh the lm is doing the marketing but it doesn't always get it right and whatever it is right it's sort of and you've you've all the stuff that you've invested of your own you know your own human capital your own time your own loving tender care of like creating these ways of doing things you're being told what suddenly that that's like not worth it and you should stop using them and use something else which appears to be worse to you on on the face of it like no way right and like that happens everywhere for most people all the time with new things um yeah. and this is certainly a new thing right so that's that's another sort of category another subcategory of the sort of humans being humans um is i guess this is sort of one of the, the more obvious ones is we are generally liable for things um and you know if you make mistakes it's sort of generally it's not an acceptable excuse to say, oh, I'm sorry that person died, the AI did it, right? Or I'm sorry that the money left your bank account that wasn't supposed to, it was the AI's problem. Like, that's not an excuse, you have to put it right. And you're, you know, your you company, you're, you're liable, right? And most companies, you know, you know, most of us spend most of our time interacting with very big companies. Um, like most people work for a big company. Um, yep. And big companies have brands to protect and they don't want to take risks. And so they're like, they're going to be really slow and conservative about introducing LLMs, which could be amazing, but like there maybe is like a 0.1% of chance of, a, of, a, of an error. But like, if you're really big, that 0.1% is going to happen at some point and yeah. it's going to be a big news story. And so you're not going to adopt it until you're sort of 99.9999% sure that it's going to be always working, right? Uh, and not causing a PR disaster. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that reminds me... I've kind of tried to use Claude to prep for a podcast, um, but Claude just lies sometimes. And I'm like, mm. if I don't know for sure which of the things are true and not true, uh, I'll say I'll like lie on the podcast. And that seems really bad. Uh, and I'm kind of just like waiting to like somehow hear that that like goes down. Uh, yeah, I'm not like racing to figure out how to use it uh, in a way that doesn't involve not truth telling. I'm just going to at some point I'll like get the sense that like the risk is low enough. Um, and who knows how long that'll take exactly and different people will have different sort of thresholds right so right for risk yeah if you're like a creative writer like who cares whether it's making something up because you're not trying to be fact-based anyway i guess you know that's not insulting to creative writers um like that that's not the point you're not supposed to sort of track events in the world whatever but if you're a lawyer you know like if you you know quote a case doesn't exist as in that that case earlier this year um (laughs) has happened right like that's really 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 bad and so the threshold for you know, you and me using it might be, you know, 90% accuracy. Um, if your lawyer has to be like 99.99999%. And it will, you know, it will vary by different tasks, right? But then 
another point on based on what you just said which is sort of i'm gonna wait for it to get better that is a huge huge deal in terms of if you're in a world where it's very obvious to you that this technology is getting better all the time and you know that you will incur a fixed cost to adopt it and when you have adopted it you won't be able to re-adopt it or upgrade it you know it'll cost you more to upgrade it again later when do you make the decision to, to sort of adopt it in the first place, right? So there's actually the whole bunch of work in operations research, which is a sort of a whole discipline, right, of like, um, how do you run certain bits of companies' operations uh, effectively, efficiently? And there's a whole bit of sort of that which looks at um, optimal technology adoption um, from this perspective. I guess or- in Australia, these banks that got uh, whatever computer system you're talking about to do their banking yeah. calculations kind of got it wrong. They like uh, invested in this thing that meant for like decades after uh, they like couldn't uh, they couldn't get new software because it didn't use the right language. And it did strike me that there's a real yeah optimization that they have to do. Yeah. That's like you want to be on technology quickly because it's gonna uh, make you more efficient, um, but too quickly and you'll like get stuck in some uh, suboptimal early stage. Like, oh man, <laughs> yeah. you're stuck. Yeah, or maybe they, you know, maybe they were right to adopt it in the sixties or seventies whenever they did, but sort of, uh, but they then knew that like, okay, we're not going to be able to upgrade it for like literally fifty years, and it will cost a billion dollars. So when do we make that billion dollar investment in nineteen ninety and two thousand? Yeah, it's just a hard decision. Yeah. So that is a decision that faces businesses and it's a harder decision for bigger businesses that are more complex and most of the economy is bigger businesses that are more complex. Um, and so you will ultimately just wait. Many people ultimately wait a long time um, before making really big, important decisions about adopting this because they're seeing how fast it's moving and it's like, why not wait a bit, right? So, and then as a major point of that is um, you'll also just like, Whilst waiting, you get to watch other people and like you can learn from mm, and learn. other people's mistakes <laughs> yeah. rather than making the mistake right. yourself and let them incur yep. the cost. So sort of, ha, 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 let the early adopters make the mistakes, right? And then we sort yep. of sit back and then sort of, you know, the, the late majority, whatever, um, they get to adopt it at a, you know, at a time when it's it's much more, uh, much less of a risk and more of a, of, a, of a guaranteed thing. Yeah, a bunch of lawyers just learn that they can't use GPT-4 um, to write whatever legal documents without um, having these hallucinations. And so they're going to wait until it doesn't do that. Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything else we should be thinking about um, with regard to how uh, the AI version of this technology rollout is going to look relative to other technologies? So I think one piece we haven't touched on yet at all is uh, what economists call market structure. Um, or industrial organization. So namely, okay. is this technology something that is kind of controlled by a single monopoly supplier or is it like completely distributed? Anyone can use it for free, whatever. Those are like really, really important questions for speed of adoption because um, basically the short answer is if you are a monopoly supplier, i.e. sort of you're the only company that can possibly provide this product, then you are generally going to set prices uh, higher than you would if you were competing with others providing the same thing. And if you set them higher, then that's going to mean that fewer people can benefit from using it. And it also means that kind of you get more of the profits and and people are sort of paying you more than otherwise they would. And so sort of you're concentrating wealth in, in these like few companies rather than it being more equally and broadly distributed around around the world. And so I guess so there's one um kind of meta point I want to make first, which is I think of GPT-4 tokens or whatever as kind of like, uh, you know, bandwidth in the telecoms system and some telephone lines, uh, fiber or whatever. So if you talk to people in telecoms who've like been around for a long time and like if they sort of run big telecoms companies, whatever, they'll tell you like, 
the, the, the iron law is that people never stop wanting more bandwidth. And um, this is this is just an, an analogy, right? So, so the analogy is in telecoms, you might think at some point there's like there's enough telephone wire laid, right? Um, and it turns out no, three G, then four G, then five G, and you know, all those people want more and more and more and more. I think access to these language models will be very similar. So okay. right now you might think GPT four, it's like I don't know what the cost is per token. It's like you know it's like less than a cent, right? But it's like you might think, gosh, that's basically free. No, it's not. Like that's actually really expensive. And the applications you can imagine for for these things, um, many of them will depend on having sort of ever more unlimited uh, access to to tokens. And so think about you know the example I gave you earlier. You want the government? You want to know how much AI research has the government spent money on so far? Um, that's one question that involves reading, you know hundreds of thousands of or millions of, of documents and pages and whatever right and right now that would cost you quite a lot of money um that's just one query right and so i right now today i spend probably you know five dollars a day it feels like just you know on on my queries to, to claude and gpt4 and sure. you know i can af- i can afford that but like if if i'm like a student using it to tutor me um and i'm you know five dollars a day is actually a lot of money um, it's yeah. a lot, you know, it's more than many people, uh, way more than many people have, have sort of available for, for anything, right? Um, it's sort of on a sort of global level. So the cheaper this stuff can be, the like, it's, it, it'll have a huge, huge impact on um, who, gets to, who gets to benefit from it and, and how do they get to benefit from it, right? And so, so right now there's this basically like OpenAI and, and Claude and then like, a, you know, a, f- a few others. Um, maybe Google's going to have something that's like as good as, as um, GPT-4 at some point. One lesson for economics is that three providers is basically not that much better than a, a pure monopoly. Um, it's a bit better, but like it's, you have to get to more like 10 providers before you have something that looks like the sort of economist version of, you know, perfect competition, um, i.e. when you're sort of offering it at, at cost. You're not sort of putting a big margin for your profit on top, right? Because you can, yeah. yeah. Because you can, you can get away with it. Yeah. And also when you only have three providers, you know, it's, it's, it already feels to me like there was some differentiation happening and that like Claude is just better at writing tasks in general and GPT-4 is better at coding tasks in general right now. That might change over time, but like right now that's my experience of it. And so if I'm a coder, I don't really have much choice. I have to use GPT-4. Right, it's um, even more of an, a monopoly. Right, and so sort of they, they are a monopolist now in that little segment. And that's a really, really, really big deal. So if... Um, you know, regulation uh, gets brought in that doesn't just stop, you know, incredibly potentially dangerous, much larger models from from being built, but mostly functions to stop, you know, new players doing anything at existing scales, then that is going to have huge impacts on, you know, what the benefits to the world are of, of these technologies. Because the benefits really come when they are close to being free, right? Not when... Uh, Everyone, you're making a little bit of margin. Um, the richest people can afford them. Exactly. And so I, I think we should really get in the habit of thinking of, of this stuff as if it's, you know, it's like it's like bandwidth on, on your phone and we should be wanting ever more of it, ever more cheaply. And we should okay. uh, do things to make sure that it is it is cheap. Another reason why AI is like telecoms, because telecoms, to offer phone service, you have to like have all these cell phone towers, right? Or lay this cable and like it's really expensive. And so not many companies can afford to do that. And so you end up in a world where naturally you just have a very small number of providers. Historically, what's happened is the government's ended up regulating those providers and capping their profits. Thames Water is the only water supplier in London, right? You have no choice but to use Thames Water, I believe. Uh, they have a complete monopoly. However, 
The government also... They can't charge whatever they want. They have to charge some amount that's... No, the government says, sorry, you can charge exactly this much and you can make this much profit um, and, you know, sort of bad luck, as it were. And they'll do it because it's worth it, but they won't... The prices won't be exorbitant because that's just not allowed. Uh, The government thinks that would be unfair and rightly so. Exactly. And so these are sort of generally, they're like listed companies. You, you and I can invest in them if you want to. And they're on, on trading on stock markets. They're completely sort of you know, independent corporations. They're not part of the government. They're not nationalized at all. They're independent. But the government says they have price controls. They say how much they can, they can charge, right? And so one sort of thing I would expect over the next few decades, uh, potentially, depending on what happens sort of with, with the market, sort of if we end up having regulation that kind of, for safety reasons, stops um, all these smaller players from coming along, uh, then the government will end up saying, you know what, OpenAI, you're basically like AT&T and you're now, we're going to cap um, the amount of profit you can make and uh, the number of, you know, sort of the, what you can charge per, per token or whatever it is. And these become very dull and boring companies kind of like a water utility company, right? Or become sort of the AT&T and maybe there's a Bell Labs attached to it, but it's sort of the, the main thing is the AT&T thing. And I, so I think there's like a, a bunch of really interesting sort of political economy things there um, around, you know, speed of adoption will be very much affected by what the price of this stuff is. The cheaper it is, the faster it will be adopted. The more expensive it is, the slower it will be adopted. Um, even what we already have, right, um, which could sustain decades of really exciting um, economic uh, growth and, and progress. Um, so that's supposed to be like a really important fact and, and big deal. Right. Yeah, it seems like so. It seems like that could have a couple of effects. One is like uh, if it if it caps the price for consumers, um, it could be much more widely adopted, and the things we have now will uh, have like wider benefits um, and across like um, a wider range of people and industries. Um, but it also seems like it might uh, slow down further progress if OpenAI, for example, like less profitable for them to. Um, to build or to like uh, push the cutting edge. Um, mm. Is that is that something you'd expect to see in that world where the government did cap? Yeah, well, I mean, look, like water companies are not famously innovative. Um, exactly, right. right? Um, although, yeah, so, well, there's a two thing with, so with Bell Labs, so I, I'm not an expert on the history of AT&T and R&D and, and so on. But like, one thing I believe is the case from having read a bit about it is that they kind of staved off regulation for much longer than you might expect by investing in things like Bell Labs um, and saying to the government, look, we're doing all this really important R&D stuff with our profits. Um, This is good. This should exist. Well, you could have the other way around when the government say, you know, the government, here's here's a clever thing the government might be able to do. The government could say, we're going to cap the cost at this amount. The cap is going to go down by 50% every year. If you can figure out a way of doing R&D to mean that your costs are way less than 50%, then you can keep all the profits you make. So a smart government could nevertheless, you know, incentivize the sort of things it wanted to incentivize um, if it was thoughtful and clever about it. There's lots of other ways of, of doing this, right? But I think there's, there's, there's more to it than just, oh, it'll reduce innovation. There's, there's all kinds of ways you can set things up such that it might actually encourage innovation of the, of the kind you want to see as opposed to the kind you want to avoid. Yeah, could... Um... Could AI progress just outpace the government's ability to create these regulations? Um, like, it seems like I think of regulation, well, in general, as like government policies as like being uh, just slow moving. Um, and like, maybe they move a bit faster uh, when like there are extreme things happening in the world. But I guess COVID was extreme and uh, some governments were able to move somewhat more quickly than others. But even so, it seems like all things considered, it would have been better if they moved faster and they still found that hard. Um, and AI seems like it moves incredibly quickly. 
it like if we're gonna get improvements to GBT four that basically like double from uh, the ones that we got last year uh, in the next year, will there already just be really extreme impacts? Um, not just impacts, but um, I guess like adoption. Uh, that means that some of these regulatory effects uh, just like don't keep up, uh, mm. and so don't slow things down. Um, I guess the way you might expect they would, or they have in other cases. Yeah, I think that, so the things we were talking about before in terms of all the reasons that, you know, interest groups and lobby groups can slow things down. Like, as I said, I think those very much apply here. And so even though the technology is moving really quickly. Okay, and they will keep up. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they will keep up in terms of by stopping it being used, right? You don't, whoever fast is moving, you can you can always pass it all to say no, right? So um, the thing that... I'd be more worried about is the sort of the far the sort of the sharp end of capabilities and the things that you know you've had many guests on this podcast talk about and as well as you know misuse and and those kinds of things that's where I'd be more concerned about regulation keeping pace because there it's not like you you have to persuade lots of people to in the real economy to adopt your thing and change the systems or you need like one bad person to have a very clever thing and to do bad stuff with it right um yep. it's those kinds of things that you have to worry more about regulating moving, moving fast enough but even there i think you know i'm not an expert on, on the history of like nuclear regulation but there's a lot of i believe something like the following is true like at some point someone convinced the u.s government the u.s president that like nuclear was like a really big deal um and it was possibly you know very very dangerous and with a single stroke of the pen i don't know whether like the it was a presidential executive order or congressional legislation, whatever, but like almost overnight, all research on nuclear anything was classified. Right? So you're a researcher, you're just like doing your PhD, whatever, or sitting at home doing some physics of whatever. Suddenly like, so, okay, from tomorrow, you doing any more work on that is illegal. The government can just do that, right? The US government can do that. And you can imagine that like, if people do enough to convince governments that this stuff is really, really scary in terms of the sort of the existential risk level of this, the government can be like, yep, yeah, okay, you convinced me. As of now, we are classifying all research on AI, right? Um, that could just happen tomorrow. And then all these companies would just like to shut down overnight. And like, that would be the law and they couldn't do anything about it. End of, end of story, right? That's completely a possible in terms of the powers government have scenario. Okay, so it's not that fast government action is impossible. It's that like, it doesn't happen that often. Sometimes it does happen, uh, I don't know, like suboptimally. It's like too slow. Um, Always but- it happens suboptimally, right? Like it's either too slow <laughs> right. or it's too fast and it's too blunt. Too so you might think the nuclear, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert. I imagine there's kind of stuff that was classified under the nuclear stuff that was like completely reasonable to not be classified and people should still argue, but like they couldn't, right? Um, and maybe we'd have much better nuclear energy today if that hadn't happened. Right. So there's all kinds of, you know, ways in which any regulation is going to be very much not first best, second best or, you know, at best, third best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, and right, I think, right. you know, we're in a really scary place right now because, um, you know, regulation, uh, if it happens, could, you know, could do a lot of good. It could do a lot of harm as well. And so we're going to have to tread, you know, very, very, very carefully. Yeah. OK. But the key thing I'm taking away from this is like, uh, if I had some intuition that, fast government action is like unlikely because you just don't see it that often. It actually is totally possible. And we just have to do a good enough job convincing uh, government that especially the safety stuff is worth taking seriously. And then were we to do that, uh, things things could change very quickly. 
the thing I would take an issue with is sort of do enough good job of convincing. What you're kind of doing is you're sort of, you know, you're, you're waving a red rag in front of a bull and you sort of, you want the bull to sort of, to jump in that direction. And it might do, but it might jump in the complete opposite direction. Um, and you don't know in advance which way it's going to jump. And so, um, anything where you're trying to get the government to do a really, really, really big thing, like by default, it will do nothing. But there is a small chance okay. it will do a really big thing. And there's a big chance if it does, that it will be really bad. Um, but it could also be really okay. good. So it's just like, or the only thing I'd say is like, it's, it's very high stakes stuff and it needs to be thought through very, very carefully. Yep. Makes sense. Sounds right. Yeah. So I guess we've gone through lots of reasons that I guess the kind of deployment of these AI systems um, as they get more and more capable, um, it might be similar to other technologies historically, which might mean something like it takes decades, um, 90 years, sounding like it's the it's a surprisingly common default. But there are some disanalogies that make it sound like it might be much quicker. Um, those seem pretty important to me. Uh, so it seems like putting a fair bit of weight on on that uh, path to like put some uh, like parameter or like, yeah, upper and lower bounds on uh, what we're talking about here. So um, mm. I guess in the pessimistic, well, I say pessimistic in quotes, the case where um, it's like deployed more slowly for lots of these reasons, like government intervention and I guess like humans being humans and, and other things. Um, what do... What do people think the impacts on the labor market in the next few years? So not not um, not in decades when when maybe AI is like much much more capable than it is today. But in the next two to five to ten years, uh, what do people think might happen on the on the like low end of uh, impact and change? So I think sort of some of the most pessimistic people are professional academic economists, um, and because you know they've seen this all before they think at least and you know all the things i was just telling you about sort of the the they all see the analogies um and maybe sort of haven't spent that much time thinking about the disanalogies and so there's a great thing called the igm economics experts panel which is a bunch of like you know seriously like the very very top of the fields absolutely brilliant people you know sort of professors of economics um at like all the best ones and they ask them these questions you know it's every week or whatever it is and they all give a sort of um their, their answer in terms of what they think will happen and like how confident they are and they recently asked you know do you think um all this fancy ai stuff is going to have a bigger um you know, will it have like a, a really big impact on gdp um in like the near future and like they basically all were like no like it's not gonna like maybe it will be as big as the internet if you're lucky but like that didn't show up in gdp statistics much for a very long time interesting and so you know what one sort of one point is like you know gdp growth has been slowing since the 1950s um that period post the 50s had involved amazing innovations of you know all the, com the computer and who knows what right and that's you know that's like 60 year period um involved that amazing stuff like you're telling me that ai is going to be sort of better than all those things and so I, I just don't think we'll see anything showing up in the gdp statistics like we're not going to be in a world where suddenly we've got you know five percent growth in the us which would be completely you know uh, economists would all you know fall off their chairs if, if that happened next year right for sure so out of distribution yeah so th that's kind of what people say who are, are more, more pessimistic yeah Got it. And and what's the story they're telling? I, I guess it sounds like kind of just an outside view kind of prediction. It's like there are loads of 
of like impressive new technologies that have been um, developed in the last few decades, and uh, they don't cause perceptible changes to the GDP. Um, this is another one of those, uh, and not doing much like updating on the like specific facts about AI. Is the story that they have in mind like uh, like yes, there will be some adoption, um, but it's not going to like double or triple anyone's productivity. It's not going to like automate away so many jobs that like, I don't know, there's like a 150% increase in the like labor available to do more work. Um, Is it just, does it assume that like the predictions about what AI could plausibly do in terms of boosting these kinds of um, labor inputs, they just think they're overblown? I I think a sort of, you know, charitable version is, Think back to 1960 and computers, the first computers are being invented. And the inventors of the computers say, look, this, this can do anything, right? You know, we've got all these humans doing loads of jobs involving, you know, tabulating data and, you know, storing, retrieving, manipulating numbers and addresses and databases and all those kind of stuff. And like, look, this computer can do all of that. Like just today, right? And you, initially you had um, the US Secretary of Labor, uh, Willard Wirtz, in 1963, giving a big speech saying, uh, we're going to have, you know, we are quickly about to be throwing all these people onto the human slag heap because of automation from computers, right? And like everyone then, I think they were correct in that like, yes, a huge fraction of the economy was in fact this clerical work could be done by computers and computers were, were coming along right then and there. The fact is, though, that it took, you know, 50 years for that to happen, um, for all the reasons that we talked about. So I think there's think that's, you know, the same sort of thing's going to happen this time. It'll, you know, big impacts, but it'll be spread over a long time. 10 years is not a very long time. Right. Have economists tried to quantify the impact of computers, um, like, on the GDP, basically? They have done a lot to try and quantify the impact of TFP growth, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, productivity improvements of all kinds, very much including innovation technology, um, versus other impacts on GDP, like, you know, how much education people have, or, you know, how many people are working versus they were sort of just working at home before whatever, sort of in the formal loan market. So lots of that kind of thing. There's been relatively limited attempts to quantify, you know, this much GDP is because of computers, partly because it's sort of, it's just really hard to quantify. You, you can sort of, on an individual company level, you can say, you can do sort of before and after, you know, before computers, they have this revenue, this profit, then afterwards, this revenue, this productivity, whatever. Yep. Um, because like the entire economy is changing at the same time, all these like demand impacts we discussed before, it's like really, really, really hard to like come up with a, a single measurement of like what the economy would look like today if there were no computers. It's like that's, that's impossible to measure uh, really properly. But we you know an upper bound is how much it has in fact grown, right? Like it can't be more than 100% of growth. <laughs> so. Right, right, right. And I guess, yeah, in these cases, overall, the economy, uh, well, growth has been slowing down relative to um, before. And so really, if you're, if that's your analogy, um, then then AI isn't obviously going to uh, to like change things at the level of the GDP. Yeah. What is it? Don't forget, you know, computers have had a huge effect and we've had huge GDP growth over the last 50 years. Like things are very different in your life and my life today than it would have been if we were sitting here in the 50s. We wouldn't be on this podcast for a start. But that stuff has <laughs> happened quite slowly over several decades and we've not had more than, you know, a small number of single digit percentage points of GDP growth at any given time. Cool. Okay. So that's the kind of charitable read of where they're coming from, um, which, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, my guess is that they'll be wrong, but it, but I like see the logic 
and uh, it doesn't seem crazy. And, and maybe I'll be wrong and maybe they'll just be like, yeah, ha, we told you it was just another technology. Okay, so the people on the other side of the spectrum who are more optimistic about AI having a bigger impact, uh, what, what are they expecting to happen? Yeah, so I think, you know, you've, you've had some of them on the, on the podcast, so I'll, I'll be very, very brief on this. But broadly, um, the, the, the claim is that AI could lead to sort of explosive growth. And where that comes from is thinking around not particularly sort of automating day-to-day activities in the economy, but automating the process of innovation itself. So people who work on this think that um, the most important thing, certainly in, you know, rich, advanced economies for economic growth is suddenly going forwards is going to be having new ideas, um, innovations. And as I, I've, I've written on this, um, have papers on, on ideas. Um, uh, however, if you think that one thing AI may be able to do is to speed up the process of research itself, this thing that sort of has the biggest cutting edge, most important impact on um, economic growth, uh, then you can imagine a, a sort of different regime where innovation is sort of way faster and, and the sort of the cutting edge stuff is, is progressing um, very quickly in, in every sort of different different area. Right. Um, Ideas get much easier to find, which creates this feedback loop of a bunch of growth. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And I certainly think that ideas are much easier to find with GPT-4 um, and, you know, its successes and, and you know, fine tunings and implementations and so on than, than before. So I, I completely am in the camp that thinks that these large language models will have a huge impact on the sort of R&D and the sort of speed with which you can do R&D. And I think the interesting question is sort of what bottlenecks are, are still there? And, you know, we, we can have a long discussion about this. And I imagine you covered lots of it with, you know, with, with other guests. I think briefly, though, you know, for innovation to actually have an impact on the economy, it has to be adopted, right? Sort of, this is, this is sort of, that's elided over. And always these economic growth models, they sort of elide over, they sort of assume scientists do R&D and it immediately shows up in terms of like actual economic output and like the goods and services that you and I are consuming. Um, and in fact, sort of, someone can have an idea, but it sort of has to go through the doctors have to agree to do it and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. Um, and so I think all that stuff still applies. And so I think you still have these huge issues of people sort of getting in the way, basically, um, and things being much slower than they sort of could be if you were like, yes, let's just do everything they told us to do. Um, I don't think that democracies or indeed any any states really will um, pursue that stronger path and things will, humans will get in the way. Okay, I guess... Yeah, I guess my inner Tom Davidson, uh, who, yeah, as you said, we had on the podcast and who and who has this idea about AI causing explosive growth. Um, I wonder if you'd say something like, yes, those will get in the way for a time, uh, but they won't be bottlenecks forever. Uh, like humans being humans, I guess whoever whoever's sitting there doing a job and is like, I'm not sure I want to use GBD4 in my job will eventually over five to 10 years, um, consider adopting, mm. or they'll just like age out of their, um, profession and like the new people will be, uh, more likely to adopt the new, yeah, the new tech. Um, so I guess that seems That's true like, for any particular technology, right? right. So like something that GPT-4 today can do all this stuff, like, okay, in 20 years time, all the people have aged out and it's finally being adopted, but like all the R&D that's now been done by GPT-4 and its successors over that 20 year period, 
there's a whole another set of humans now who have to age out and allow those adoptions to be adopted in this world where it's sort of humans getting in the way right so there's like it's always going to be the case that there are humans in the way for any particular new adoption yep i guess yeah i guess i'm i'm on board with that's that's a bottleneck um and that'll slow things down but not that it's a bottleneck that will rule out the more um extreme outcomes where uh where growth is really on the on the explosive end why might i be wrong uh no i look we uh forecasting is a tricky business and i don't think you know no one claims to know what's going to happen sure and it is yes i would not rule out anything like i'm not going to sit here and say there is zero percent probability um of any particular thing i think compared to most economists i'm sure i would be like way on the side of thinking this is going to be a really 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 big deal but i think compared to tom i think i would say just like if you spend enough time studying economic history, you see all these things that slow stuff down and those things that slow stuff down look like they're not going to go away. Um, and so I would sort of want to put all that stuff back into his model and his model doesn't have that stuff in it. His model is kind of assumes there's, there's none of this humans getting in the way, in the ways that we spent a lot of time earlier in the conversation talking about. You know, we can go through and you know, Tom, you know, Tom and I have had these kind of discussions oh, talking great. through, you know, sort of, you know, tell me your bottleneck and I'll tell you why it's not a bottleneck, whatever, right? So you, we can have those discussions and they're very fun to have. Oh my gosh, I want to have you both on the podcast now. <laughs> that, yeah, that would, that, would be, that would be fun. And, but I think this sort of, it's not like, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's, um, you know, I can keep coming up with new bottlenecks and he can keep dismissing them and we, we can keep going on forever and, and so there's there's not like a sort of yes like there's a nice definitive thing we both agree that if, if, if x was true then here's the answer i think yeah it's sort of it's not a, a thing where i just you know in the next five minutes we can we can you and i can talk more about this and sort of reach a nice clear conclusion about whether there are bottlenecks or not in r&d whatever and be like yeah. oh the bottlenecks can be ruled out <laughs> yeah Broadly speaking, it sounds like you're in the camp of like uh, AI could have uh, pretty big effects on the economy and on and on growth. And maybe it'll be uh, on the faster side, maybe somewhat on the slower side. Um, but overall, you are not in the camp of like, it's just any other technology like the internet, um, which like had some impacts on growth probably, but not like world changing. I mean, whatever, they were world changing, but. Mm. Yeah, the, the, so I think like AI could be going from like, nothing to the industrial revolution was like a massive deal um given we are in the economic regime we are in already we sort of we've done that zero to something so bob gordon has this nice um thought around sort of see once you go from only having outdoor toilets to like having a flushing toilet a proper modern toilet like that's a huge improvement in the quality of life and like yeah. almost nothing compares to that and you, you can only sort of do that once going from living in the, in the state of nature right, you to can add a bidet but that's <laughs> only so much better yeah and so i think there's a bunch of sort of i have some intuitions in that direction of like compared to us in 1800 to today um like we've, we've had so much amazing change um and i believe that ai is going to have another completely incredible unbelievable set of changes that are going to have huge huge impacts on gdp in the, in the coming years and decades yeah i think it'll be you know the world is likely to be you know not unrecognizable but like quite unrecognizable um in the coming decades but i think this is perhaps sort of an argument about measurement than it is about like impacts on the world i think like the way that will show up in GDP, like it might be sort of a bit of a sort of phase shift regime change compared to the post-war periods. But like, I'm not quite as optimistic as Tom is, I think, about how big that will be in terms of like, I don't think we'll have 30% a year growth happening indefinitely. Like that just, yeah, I think that's unlikely. Cool. That is really helpful. 
Okay, so yeah, there's still some space between uh, Tom's view and yours, and then probably some more space between your views and some of uh, professional academic economists. Um, do we have any early evidence about uh, what trajectory we're following? Like, I guess, are there any indicators that uh, are pointing to more growth or less or like bigger labor impacts or smaller ones? So you know, there's a bunch of things you look at, right, in terms of um, GDP growth and productivity growth. Um, and like right now, there's like nothing at all to see in those that suggests anything is happening. Now, it, it's kind of historically always the case that, you know, te technology comes along, does amazing things, and it takes a long time to show up um, in those statistics. Um, it's got a fun paper from a few years ago by um, Bill Nordhaus, uh, economist at Yale, called um, Are We Approaching an Economic Singularity? And he has always sort of these sort of, he comes up with these sort of very thoughtful tests around like what we'd expect to see in the economy if we are approaching this point. And um, yes, well, the, the, the final line of, of the abstract of the paper is um, uh, the tests suggest that the singularity is not near. Um, so that, that's his sort of glib, glib answer um, to, to that question. But I think broadly, you know, economic statistics of the kind that we currently collect are more of a rear view mirror than a you know a sort of looking forwards and so you're just you know if if something's really big is happening um i think it's you're not like economists are not the people who will tell you uh, oh yes it's all showing from gdp it's like no it'll be happening in many other places before um economic indicators start suggesting it's happening got it got it got it i want to turn to like the longer time horizon or or like at the point at which uh, things are getting even more extreme because of AI becoming more and more capable. But I guess we should also just flag, like, there's all this complexity uh, in the short time horizon. And so everything we say uh, about the world where uh, AI can automate even more tasks is going to be even more speculative. Yeah. Is there anything more you want to say on that uh, caveat wise before we dive in? <laughs> um, so... Just, uh, I guess, well, yeah, emphasize it and to, and to say that, you know, we're sitting here kind of prognosticating and, you know, we're just talking about the economic impacts, right? We haven't, we've like touched a tiny bit on politics insofar as it impacts like labor unions and that very small slice segment of, of things. But like, there is so much else going on in the world um, that's going to be really, really important and relevant to this stuff that we haven't touched on at all. So sort of caveat emptor, I think hopefully what we've talked about so far has given people a really good sense of kind of the kinds of forces at play and the things you have to be paying attention to. The final thing I just add to this is that like, you might say, oh, you know, in one day we'll know what happened. But actually, we won't because um, we today, looking back, right, it's it's not at all obvious what the impact of you know computers have been over the last thirty years. And many brilliant economists have had stellar careers answering a very specific question in a clever way. But no one's really answered the sort of the macro question of like, okay, right. so all in, what was the impact? And like, what would the world be like if it, if it hadn't happened? Like, we have no idea. And so I think the same will be true in, you know, whether it's in three years time, five years time, 10 years time, like, what would the world be like compared to if like GPT-4 had never been invented, right? Like, we'll just never know because we can't observe the counterfactual world where it didn't happen. So I think that the most we can do is kind of be really thoughtful about the forces at play. And we can use those to reason, I think, reasonably well um, about sort of the kind of things that are likely to happen and the kind of timeframes it might happen on. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. Okay, so with all of those caveats in mind... <laughs> all that uh, said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, ignore everything we're about to say, because it's going to be even more speculative and we'll never even know if it's true. Um, 
We've been talking about a case where AI uh, can automate some small percentage of tasks. And I don't know, do we know what percentage of tasks AI can automate right now? Um, no, is the answer. But, you know, in terms of sort of the, the estimates, just to give you a, a ballpark that the sort of, you know, the OpenAI paper, for example, give, uh, they say something like, I think, 80% of the US workforce could have at least 10% of their tasks affected uh, by by LLMs. 19% of workers could see at least half of their tasks affected. Again, affected doesn't mean automated, replaced, it just means sort of, you know, exposed in, in some way. Um, so these are reasonably large numbers. Yeah, it's both, it feels both low and high to me, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but it could be really high. It could be um, 50%, it could be 90%. It, at some point, uh, we'll probably get to superhuman AI uh, and it can do all the tasks we can and more. Um, but even 50% feels like pretty different to what's happening now. And mm. uh, I'm wondering if at that point, uh, like any of these models will even apply. Uh, at that point, is just is the world just too different for this kind of conversation to to be applicable yeah so i think i'm gonna stand up for economists here and say yes um okay as in the models do apply all these sort of considerations do apply so let's think about the question gosh wouldn't wouldn't it be different if we're talking about 90 percent of of jobs being automated let's go back to a place we started earlier in the conversation thinking about agriculture in the u.s in 1790 in 1790 it was a true statement to say in the coming years 90% of jobs will be fully automated. Right. Right. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a true fact. Right. right. That's in fact what happened. Um, now. That's insane. Yeah. That happened over a, you know, 100, 150, 200 year time frame. And so the, 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 the speed of this change is kind of really, really important. Um, but then don't forget back to our talk about, you know, discussion of, of unions and, you know, the American Medical Association and politics and so on, not to mention all the sort of the sort of rational decisions of company CEOs and so on. There's all kinds of forces that, that mean these things take a long time, even if in theory one could do lots of stuff quickly. There's also this like just capital availability constraints and all kinds of things uh, as, as well. There's just like not enough spare cash flowing around in the world for like, everyone to do that at the same time um or they're like there's not enough resources uh, because like adopting technology you know requires all kinds of work to be done and you can't just like stop the entire economy whilst you retool everything like sort of people still want to eat food and they still want to you know <laughs> fly in planes and whatever it is you can't like down tools and say no all we're doing for the next five years is switching everything over to LMs. you only sort of take so many planks out of your boat um, and replace them while you're sailing in the water um at the same time and so there's there's you know, there's all these kinds of constraints that i think um are sort of not obvious until you sort of think about them um and so that's that's point one so even in a world with 90 percent of tasks automated like we have been there before um it happened it happened lots of times um and we're still here and things are fine right um and things kind of look not that they look quite different from 1790 but you know many things are still the same in that sense things yeah things can get weird but there's there's still there's some sort of upper limit as to sort of how fast i think they will naturally get weird from an economic perspective that said let's think about you know what happens when it is 90 percent, whether that comes in 100 years time whether it comes in 10 years time so i think there's a few really important things here so we generally are going around saying, gosh, what if it automated, you know, 90% of cognitive tasks? Big emphasis there on the word cognitive. Many, many tasks in the economy are not cognitive tasks. And back to the old sort of thing we've been discussing all the way through as to like when you automate some kind of thing, suddenly like all the incentives go towards how do you make more value out of the stuff that is left that is not automated um, or that, you know, humans, humans can now do because they've been freed up and they can do something else now. Um, 
And I think there are many, many, many things that are not cognitive um, that, you know, there'll be, there'll be huge amounts of demand for for humans to to do. Does that mean like most people uh, are going to be doing a bunch of physical tasks? I guess like <laughs> moving boxes, because I guess that sounds pretty strange to me, even though uh, your conclusion might mean like it's not that we'll have loads of unemployment, but it might be that we're, we're like most people are just doing a bunch of physical labor. Is that what it points at? So by physical labor, it would be weird, right, if we ended up sort of lift, lifting boxes in warehouses. Like, I don't think <laughs> yeah. that's where we're going to go. Um, uh-huh. But and there's, there's things which we'll get onto beyond physical labor. But within physical labor, like caregiving is a physical task, right? Like if you are um, looking after an old person who needs care, like you have to be physically present and you have to help them do all kinds of stuff. Like That's what you're there for that's a physical job and there is going to be like so much demand for that kind of work going forward and i don't forget like most of us spend you know 18 25 whatever years in education before we even start working and then people seem to be living longer and longer and retiring earlier and earlier so you're actually only working for you know 30 40 years out of a you know 80 year lifespan right and then there's like half of those people maybe are you know they're not engaged in the formal labor force because um they're looking after young children um or you know they're staying at home or whatever it is right or they're 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 rich and retired or they retired really early or or this kind of you know they're working not many hours a week right so it seems like everyone these days is switching to four day weeks um and it you know seems, seems great right and in the long sort of history of this it's amazing what's happened in terms of hours. Minor digression quickly, but like in 1870, the average hours of work, someone, yeah, for a working person in America, uh, was 70 hours per week, right? It was like a grueling life. You were like working like in the factories, whatever, like you were made to work really, really, really hard, right? Today, it's 35 hours a week. So we've literally seen a halving of those who are full-time employed, a halving of the hours per week right um just and more recently in the uk just in the last kind of 30 year period the uk has seen the decline of 20 percent in hours worked kind of per worker like excluding those who are retired whatever like among those who are working right so there's, there's ever further declines in sort of hours worked because people sort of choose to spend some of their extra wealth on like working fewer hours and um, that's like a you know, long run trend right so yeah. per capita there's like half of a person per capita because of half your life you're spending in education or you're retired and then it's like okay half again because we're like working way fewer hours now than we ever used to and so like you keep doing that and so let's suppose that like in the entire economy there's actually like 20 percent of a worker per capita right that means that if the entire economy sort of if everyone was having to sort of to be caregiving right that there's like not enough humans to go around if we think it's important to have uh, sort of live human carers looking after people who uh, who need care and so given if we think that looking after the young children and educating them and we think sort of we definitely want to have humans involved in bringing up children we're not going to hand our kids to the robots and say great see you in 25 right we're going to have adults be involved um and we think we're probably not going to hand all of the elderly over to robots either maybe some we will uh although we know the choice whatever like you know if, if possible you're going to prefer to have human care that already is like a huge, huge unsatisfied demand that you can see persisting. And the sort of, and the, the forces, the demographic directions of those forces are sort of ever more in the direction of like a shortage of human labor because it's, we're spending more time in education and more time retired, right? And therefore, there's like less people who are able to do this work of, of teaching and, and caring and uh, ever more sort of people who are demanding it. Um, so it sounds like the story you're telling is one where 
where AI can automate loads of tasks. Um, but because it can do that, there will be a couple of effects. One is like people might just work less because they can. That makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. I will probably do that. Yep, and has been happening for a long time. Yep. Um, and there's historical evidence that that's been happening and it could just keep happening. But then at the same time, we might just have values that um, that mean that there are some types of jobs that we want humans to keep doing and that, and that there could be an equilibrium where uh, the amount of work done is basically like the amount of work required to do the tasks that we want humans to do. And then everything else will be done by AI. And maybe that does mean that there's a much smaller overall workforce. Um, and uh, maybe it's because there are fewer people working and other people, I guess, don't need to be working. Um or maybe it's like everybody-ish is working, mm. but they're working for like five to 10 years of their lives uh, and then retiring or working a few days a week. And so there's like a huge decrease overall in like number of hours worked by humans. Um, but it doesn't necessarily go to zero um, unless we at some point decide like we just really don't value being um, served by humans in any cases. Uh, mm. And I guess that I think maybe the the piece that is missing for me right now is like the reason that that's possible is because uh, the fact that we've automated a bunch of tasks super cheaply means that there's growth and a surplus of of like goods and wealth. That means that yep. people just can work way less. And so I guess uh, I do feel like I had some story before that was like, Maybe we'll need universal basic income, um, but maybe the actual thing is like either we'll have something like that or like natural economic restructuring and equilibriums will mean that like you need much less wealth um, to have as good or better a standard of living and uh, at, at like a lower rate of or a lower amount of working hours. And yeah, and I guess I mean, that's just pretty wild to me well again it's it's a purely it's a continuation of current trends there's nothing new here right so um right you might know so Domina Keynes for this famous essay in about 1920 i think called economic possibilities for our grandchildren and he predicted back then that in 100 years i don't know when exactly we would all be working um 15 hour weeks right okay. and in fact right. we got halfway there right so yeah. we, we got sort of down to 30 hour weeks wherever you're a bit ambitious right? He was very, but he was he was broadly correct. And to your point, it means like sort of the equilibrium here is kind of, you know, if you can afford to retire earlier, then you do. But that means you have to have enough resources to be able to pay other people to, you know, look after you or make food for you or whatever it is, right? So even though you're not working. So um you're sort of you're still there's still labor demand being created. And so the the more people retire early the more work the people who are left have to do, and so the more wages they have, and so the more it's potentially worth, I don't know, working a bit longer, depending on which effect dominates in terms of like, you want to work more because you can earn more versus take advantage of um, being able to retire early because you make more money. Except there's like, these things, again, always go in different directions, but yeah. there's definitely a sort of long-run equilibrium there, and it's going, you know, and sort of the, the state of that equilibrium is going in one direction, which is we're working, we're working less and we are, I think, happier for it. Yeah, I guess part of me is like, that's a pretty nice story. Uh, that's a story where um, people get to have as much nice stuff or more stuff um, and work less. And that just sounds pretty good. So <laughs> nice. Yeah, Yay. That's the story of the last 200 years, right? That's exactly what's been happening. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, well done. Yeah. Well done, humanity. <laughs> we've also um, done lots of terrible things. Obviously, not only we should uh, obligatory pointing out that we've you know destroyed the planet and, and so on, right? Um, yes. But like being purely self-interested for right now and not caring about our grandchildren and not caring about the planet and all that other stuff. Like we have more stuff and we work less, and it's nice for those people. Well, hopefully. Um, all of this surplus um, that we're getting is also going to help us solve some of these problems. Exactly. Um, 100%. Yes. And that's kind of, you know, the hope is as you sort of ascend Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you suddenly start being like, oh, no, well, you know what? We can afford to do this now. We do care about the planet and we do care about etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there like a dark side to the story? One thing I'd worry about is like, as seems bad now, uh, some people work much harder than others. Some people uh, have much less than others. Uh, does Is there a story where this exacerbates inequality? Because uh, like many people who are wealthy now work less and less and less, um, but some people work uh, loads still and that's unfair. Mm. Uh, or is the like overall increasing um, wealth and uh, productivity going to uh, lift everyone up such that uh, at least relative to now um, basically everyone's better off mm. i think this is a like politics really comes in here and things like the minimum wage become really 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 important you know, there are interesting arguments about whether the minimum wage increases or decreases the total amount of labor demand i think there's not a clear consensus on that but i think it is pretty clear at least among labor economists that if you look at inequality as sort of income inequality over the last few decades yeah. uh, particularly at the sort of the lower end like a really 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 important thing is where the minimum wage is set at and so if you're saying, you know, maybe in a completely free market, human labor would be at such a low level that you sort of have to be, you know, working many more hours than, than you would like. Um, the government can just say, you know what, we're going to sort of we'll do the equivalent of increasing workers' bargaining power. Um, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're just going to literally set, set minimum prices higher. And, you know, um, those, those people are uh, much happier, right? They're getting paid more. There's you know, whole debates we can have about the impact of, of minimum wage and, and sort of whether it's good and bad and, and, and so on. Um, but broadly, thinking about if you're an employer and you're employing workers, the worker has, is producing some output, some amount of stuff, and they get paid. And they certainly have to be paid less than their, their output because they were paid more than the company would literally lose money by employing them, so they wouldn't employ them, right? Um, but generally, there's sort of some amount that the, work, the, worker is work, the worker is producing. And in some cases, the worker captures most of that amount. In other cases, they capture very little of that amount depending on how much bargaining they pa- bargaining power they have, um, whether they're, sort of, they're in a market where there's loads of people just like them or like they're the only person who can do what they're doing. So this, this sort of um, surplus gets divided between the worker and, and the employer. But broadly, I think there's sort of lots of reasons to think that the wages you can earn as someone with kind of the least skills in society, um, those th- that wage, you know, keeps ratcheting up over time, whether it is because of increasing minimum wage, whether it is because of increasing technology, increasing your productivity, whether it is because of increased education. That's like the biggest thing, right? People get so much more education these days than they did, you know, 20 or 40 or 100 years ago. Right. But I think there's a quick side note on that. Like you'd be, it's it's amazing. You just think, you know, just forget. Like if we went a hundred years ago, like most people would be illiterate. So if you, if you go on the tube in London, the underground, right? There's always like interesting sort of coloured patterns on the on the walls for different stations. The reason they are there is because most people on the underground, when the underground was built, could not read, and therefore they had to have some other indicator of what station they were at, right? I mean, we forget how sort of 
uneducated um, everyone was 100 years ago, right? And the story of the last 100 years, um, you know, the US was kind of fastest here. They, they got their act together by far the fastest compared to most of the economies in terms of educating people much more at the sort of high school level and beyond. But sort of Europe sort of eventually caught up and, and needed, you know, the, the rest of the world. We sort of, we went from... Um, this like this amazing amount of sort of what you might call educational upgrading, and not only do people become literate, they sort of we're now in a world where half of people are sort of getting degree level qualifications, right? And like that's and like I don't think that can that necessarily will stop. I think that can sort of keep going and going and going. Um, maybe the institutions will change, and I, I certainly personally hope hope they will. But I think in terms of like can people keep getting more education and learning more? Like absolutely, um, and that's as much about people who sort of currently are only getting you know, up to age 18 level, um, as much as it is about those getting masters, now getting PhDs or, or whatever, more vocational training. Um, there's like so much more room for every human to learn more stuff and to avoid going on another huge tangent. But like, yeah, obviously TPD4 language models have a huge amount um, of impact, will have a huge impact very quickly, I think, on education in terms of how easy it is to learn new stuff and how personalized that can be and, and how well explained it can be and all that kind of this kind of thing. And so I think we're also hopefully about to see a sort of golden age for, for, for education and people who maybe would have been more low, you know, quote, low skilled, um, you know, today or 50 years ago um, are now able to be much closer to what we now regard as like, you know, a good college educated person. Like sort of like everyone's going to get to that point or to, as kind of it suits them and the kind of things they want to do. The kinds of things one might want to cover in a college education might look very different and will be much less around sitting still and studying a book and much more about other things. And like those things, I think, will be broadly available to, to everyone. Um, or certainly, you know, that's that should be one of the first tasks of society is to make sure that's the case. And I, I think we will get there. Yeah, I guess one reason to be pessimistic that, again, we've covered in other episodes, but just to add the caveat, um, uh, like AI also poses huge risks um, yeah. from misuse and from, yeah, from unsafe development and i'm yeah are there are there things besides that like if we were to both uh, align ai and sufficiently prevent misuse are there things besides that that worry you um or or are we just going to keep trending toward this um pretty great sounding world uh where we work less and have more mm. again i would emphasize i've just been focusing on the the sort of economic picture here right so i think about you know covid Right. We, we, we could have sat here five years ago and talked about how great the economy will be in 2020. Uh -huh. And yet it was like way worse than we expected because of this thing that's kind of extra economic. And, and yet it sort of caused a huge, huge, huge negative impact on, on the economy. Right. So what I'm talking about here is just sort of set aside, you know, America, China, national, inter, you know, huge World War Three. set aside the alien invasion and the COVID Mark <laughs> II and the AI's takeover and the asteroid and, and all that stuff. And like, assume away all of that, like what happens in the economy? Got it. And I think there, there's, a, there's that sort of, you know, broadly positive story. And I should emphasize it's positive because I, I believe, I think, pretty fundamentally in the sort of the power of Sort of democracies and I guess maybe other forms of government as well. I'm, I'm less sure about those, but you know, to sort of to uh, ensure that you know, humans being humans, right, and like slowing things down, like the humans actually do successfully slow things down. Um, yeah. And that generally, you know, benefits some humans more than others, but overall it sort of keeps things manageable for us. 
Okay. And I I think that will continue because there are all these natural forces um, that stop things happening as fast as you might think if you were sort of naively thinking, hey, this is possible now. Surely it's going to be everywhere tomorrow. It's like, no, it doesn't quite work as fast as that. It doesn't work that way. But, you know, let's let's step back and say, you know, is democracy going to survive for other reasons? Um, is there going to be a, you know, US-China war? All that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I think I'm probably quite pessimistic about all of that stuff, actually. Okay, um, okay. Um, but on the pure economic side, I think I, I sort of, uh, I'm perhaps less worried um, having thought about it quite a lot than others. Yeah. Okay. So we should think of this story as the story of, of what could be if we manage a bunch of these risks and yes. uh, and the economy does what the economy does, which is basically uh, relatively efficiently allocate these resources such that people broadly end up having more, working less and being better off. Correct. Cool. That that makes sense. And I really hope we solve these um, these safety <laughs> issues because mm, uh, I, mm. I do find this story just very, very inspiring. Uh, it would be pretty incredible to to get to get close to there. Let's hope we get to experience it. Yeah. Let's push on to our final topic. So I want to talk about some concrete career advice. Uh, a lot of our listeners are interested in how the development of AI um, should influence their own career planning. And I guess to start, yeah, to what extent should people be taking all of this AI progress in mind when making their career plans? Is it is it even a given that they should be? Yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to start with a non-answer that hopefully is still like actually interesting, which is they should totally be taking AI into account by they should be using it to help them with career planning. Like, I, I, you know, I was thinking about careers as a, you know, whatever, 20-year-old. It's like, you have no idea what these jobs actually involve. You can read the websites in the company, and you can these days you can read the wonderful career profiles on, on the 8000 House website, but you still often have no idea what's actually involved in, in many of these things, right? And so if you're lucky, maybe you know someone who's done the job, but often you don't. And now you can, you know, you can literally go on, on, um, you know, Claude, or whatever, and say, "Hey, please pretend you are a McKinsey consultant. Uh, do you love your job? Please be honest." I just did this, and the answer was, "I have mixed feelings about my job as a McKinsey consultant." <laughs> it gives you a long list of pros and cons, right? Oh. So, um, oh, that's really funny, right? And so you can do this for all, you know, all kinds of stuff. The thing I was always remember when I was, you know, at that point of choosing first careers, I was like, "But like, what do you actually do all day?" Like, you can give me all this amazing, exciting stuff around the you know the impact and the great colleagues and whatever but like what are you actually doing and what's the division of, of, of your time and like these language models like actually often know the answers quite well although they certainly are much better than whatever your first guess is uh-huh. and so they can help you with that they can help you brainstorm who to reach out to they can help you prepare you know questions to ask someone that you're having a sort of coffee informational chat with um they can you can tell them what you're interested in and it will suggest careers for you you can tell it you are my career coach please ask you figure out what questions to ask me to help me decide what to do right all these things um nice. it can just do an amazingly good job out, out the box and then okay tell of like um beyond that sort of you know process uh piece like terms of like okay how will it actually affect the choices you make the sort of the fact the world is changing in this way so i think both it will you know massively influence the economy and sort of you know what what one should think about doing but at the same time 90 percent of people are not going to be thinking very hard about it as they make their, their sort of career plans so it's not you're going to be sort of you're going to be completely disadvancing yourself by not thinking you're about be it. totally left behind yeah yep. it's more just like no if you think about it then you're instantly in the top 10 percent of people thinking about these things <laughs> okay and so i think a, a few sort of concrete thoughts um i think the the sort of the, the easiest sort of generic piece of advice is 
you should think really hard about how AI is going to be useful and impact the particular things that you care about and might want to work in. Um, I think the, the, the sort of there's going to be, um, yeah, sure, there's a shortage of, of AI researchers directly right now, and certainly alignment researchers, but like people who are like any old other thing, um, so people in, in government, uh, or people working for, I don't know, all the kinds of, you know, career profiles that, that you'd like to write about, know about who those, people know about those, and they know about AI in, in some real detail, like you are instantly going to have a very rare and valuable skill set. And so learning about AI sort of as it is for its own sake, and then thinking really hard and carefully about how it interacts with the kinds of work that you're doing, but sort of really specializing it to your particular industry, like thinking in great detail about particular tasks um, and thinking about sort of how whole production processes could be reimagined and thinking about as well, you know, we have not talked much about the dangers and the risks and the errors and so on. We sort of, it's come up in passing, but as you know, many podcasts we could have just on that. And, you know, I think you, you've had some uh, uh, on, on that. And so thinking about those in great detail and like being really uh, you know, thoughtful about about the risks in any particular application area as well as sort of the more, the more general and, and scary ones. I think that's just going to be, you're going to be so unique and rare and valuable that you're going to have an instant massive leg up. So that's a sort of a, one generic piece of advice. The other generic piece of advice as well is you can also, I think now upskill much more quickly for any particular question or, or career path, right? So you're like, what, what does a, you know, consultant need to know? What does a, you know, grant evaluator need to know? Um, what does a safety researcher need to know? Like, all those specific things you can actually um, use GPT four or etc. to teach yourself, um, or to give you a huge leg up in 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 that sort of self you know um, autodidactic uh, exercise teaching yourself than you could before. Okay, great, great, good advice. Um, what jobs would be sensible to go into now because uh, demand for them is going to go up? Mm. Um, so I, I kind of think of career paths more than like specific jobs. Specific jobs, sure. Yeah. And I think that is, yeah, what I mean. Because, yeah. And these, these things will kind of, you know, uh, evolve a lot over the next, yeah. uh, you know, coming coming years for all the reasons we've been talking about. Um, one theme that's come up a lot, I guess, in this conversation is entering a highly regulated industry is going to, you're going to be more uh, safe and, you know, not exposed to radical changes than entering one that is not regulated. And so if you, if you ask for a sort of nice, steady, stable thing, uh, go after the sort of the, the strong unions and uh, the slash professional bodies, um, like the, you know, American Medical Association, um, because you'll probably um, have, a, have a sort of relatively easier time of things. Um, if, however, you're someone who wants to lean into a risk, which I probably, you know, many people should, uh, and much, much more than they, in fact, do, certainly when you're, when you're young, you know go for the areas where um there's kind of the most most change and the most likelihood of ai actually having a sort of short you know more more sort of near-term impact so those are kind of like industry level thoughts in terms of like specific what you're doing day-to-day like occupation or uh, a sort of skills so i think okay first a sort of general again generic thought so one is like you want to be um adding value on top of large language models so, so uh, p- pretend that doctors are not regulated. Okay, so um, imagine that like we can just change things for everyone. It's a pure market system. In that case, uh, what you, I think I expect to see is very quickly GPT, Claude, whatever starts, or you know, fancy startup that just raised lots of money. I forget what it's called. That's like just going to build a health LLM. Um, I've talked with lots of these companies now, right? Um, they can just like do a much better job than the doctors of diagnosis and prescription and all kinds of other stuff. 
particularly the kind of the GP sort of entry, more entry level um, stuff that requires like wide body of knowledge and everything's changing all the time and you don't have much time with people and whatever, right? Um, and not that much physical stuff either. And so, okay, in that world, like what does a human do on top? Uh, well, probably in that world, but certainly for the sort of the GPs of this world, um, again, in the pretend world where it's not regulated, so this is not going to happen, I, I claim, um, but supposing it did, you would say probably uh, that, you know what, we don't need GPs to have anywhere near as much training as they currently are required to have, um, because the, the, the algorithm can do a much better job of diagnosing and prescribing. And now what their job is doing is really much more about the empathy and it's much more, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the small number of things which are more sort of physical, sort of I had to smell you or something until we have smell GPT. I'm sure it's coming, but for now, um, humans have to do that. And, yep. uh, and sort of, yeah, they're sort of making you feel, you know, appreciated and, and loved and, and cared for and all those kinds of things. Now, the, the thing is, right, is that I sadly, or, you know, I guess in a sense, luckily um, uh, for us, but also sadly in, in terms of sort of what it means for, for wages, if you're going into a job where it's like, all you're doing is you're layering on empathy on top of GPT in a sort of in-person setting, that is just, there'll be tons of demand for that, but it won't be particularly, like, that, that skill of empathy is not that rare. And so you won't get paid that much to do it. It's like not as anywhere near as rare as the doctor who today, right, who's kind of, there's not many of them and they have to do all these years of training and they get paid loads and loads of money. Yeah. Right. So um, it's, it's sort of adding value on top of, of language models and the value you're adding is somewhat uh, rare. So what are the kinds of value you can add? The, the first thing is sort of the generic point. Now let's be specific. Like what, are, what actually are those things? Okay. Yeah, so right. I think the first thing is, is social skills. There's wonderful work by an economist called David Deming, who's at Harvard, and um, his kind of breakout paper uh, a few years ago was characterizing occupations in terms of um, whether they've acquired high technical skills or high social skills, uh, or in particular, sort of two by two grid of like low technical, low social, low technical, high social, etc. Right, and. And looking sort of over the last, I don't know, 30 years at um, wages for people in these different buckets. And it turned out that the only kind of people um, or jobs that have seen real sort of outlier, fantastic wage growth are those with high technical skills and high social skills. So if you just have high social skills and no technical skills, you've done pretty averagely. If you have just high technical skills and no social skills, you've also done pretty averagely, certainly in terms of sort of wage growth in, in recent decades. And if you've got neither, then even more so, you know, n- not so good. Only those who've got both have done really well. And overall, there's been sort of a, a hugely increasing demand for social skills. And I think that's only going to continue, you know, as the economy gets more complex and LLMs are doing more of the sort of cognitive labor, there's going to be so much more, you know, uh, communication and decisions about what we actually care about to be made um, and lots more client interaction and customization and, you know, user interviewing and client relationship management and people management, all that kind of stuff. That's going to get relatively more important because those are the things that the language model cannot do. But can Um, it definitely not? Part of me is like, I don't know, Claude's Claude's like pretty, not just polite, but like, uh, like friendly. Uh, I feel, I feel actually. It's friendly. It's graceful. It can write delicate emails really well. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the thing that, um, that's missing there? Yeah. So it has, it has sort of, I guess it has sort of written down empathy. Um, what it can't do is put you in a room and, um, you and I are having a conversation and, 
I like you now, right? Like, or, you know, you, you made me feel heard uh, or respected or whatever it is. So I think, you know, in a chat, in a chatbot form, uh, it, you know, it can, you can type to it and make, you'll be sort of, you can make you feel heard, right? I, so and there's the, that, that's, that certainly is the case, right? But sort of these higher value forms of, of, of social skills and empathy, I think, and sort of, you know, charisma, um, things which involve like direct human to human interaction, this stuff actually, I think, gets gets more important, and I think it's it's particularly important when interacted with the the second thing I'm going to say, which is personal networks and trust. Those are valuable, right? What can Claude not do? It cannot introduce you to anyone. Claude cannot email on its behalf and say hello. Dear, you know, expert Y or manager Z, uh, my name's Claude. I'm an AI. Um, I've got a great guy talking to me over here. Um, I think he's really great. Would you mind, you know, giving him a job or whatever it is, right? Like that doesn't happen. And when you get down to it, many, many, many occupations, industries, and certainly, you know, most professional services. So kind of actually the kind of things where, you know, on the one side, there's lots of impact that we are predicting from these language models, um, things like bankers and lawyers and venture capitalists, they, you know, they actually all rely on trust and relationships. Like their whole job is about building networks and building trust and like with, with other humans i.e. With, with their clients or, you know, investees or whatever it is. Um, or take journalists, for example, right? So we could all talk, talk about, oh yeah, ChatGPT can like instantly write all the sort of the basic business news stories that as a result of, I don't know, analyst earning calls or like summarizing what's happened in parliament this week or whatever it is, right? But kind of the really important stories that are investigative journalism where there is a source and a source has revealed something you were not supposed to reveal to a journalist because the journalist made them feel trusted that is a human thing in general right because like if you if you sort of email me what today and be like hello my name is claude can you tell me anything illegal happening in your workplace because i'm a bot but like trust me it's all fine and i'll help you get it into these and like you're like no way uh-huh. but like, you meet someone in a bar I, I don't know how these things work with with journalists whatever right but sort of i imagine there's all kinds of you know trust building that that goes on and it takes a long time and certainly you know I've, i have had experiences with other kinds of kind of professional services providers as in me being on the receiving end of sort of trust building and like very human takes a long time it's all in person it's not on email let alone it's not on zoom it's it's all like the in-person is, is where it really happens and there's going to be ever more of that so i think that kind of ability to build trust and and then in general having a, a network a personal network professional network is is only going to get it's, it's already extremely important um to an extent i think most kind of people who are just starting in the labor market you know straight out of uh, of, of school or university don't quite appreciate and i certainly did not appreciate until i was quite a long way in but like it is what makes everything kind of go around and how everything works and that is that's only going to get more important i think um over time or think about you know, something like building a website you can go on you know wix or something and get a template or you can pay someone lots of money and they'll do a fancy special customized one and so in there's a general you know theme about as you go through the economy ever more demand there's like work can be created to customize things ever more for each individual person certainly llms will be involved in that a ton on the sort of production side but there's a huge scope for humans 
um, you know, working for these companies to be the sort of the ones interacting with, you know, with you, the client. Okay, so tell me more. You know, what kind of website do you want? Right. And let's do a brainstorming session. That'll be fun, won't it? And uh, let me help introduce you to the right people in the bank to help you with this important uh, transaction you're doing or, or whatever it is, right? And so those kinds of jobs where you're basically schmoozing um, and, and building trust people, like there's, a, there's like a limitless demand um, for all of that side of things. Cool. Wow. Okay. Those are, that's loads of things, but it sounds like the theme is, yeah, charisma, um, networks and trust, general people skills, uh, things that require people to be like, I like you and I trust you. Yes. Yeah. Is there any more on that? So beyond the sort of social skills and to trust and that sort of things, there's, there's another category here, which is around sort of management. We've touched a bit on it, but I think managing teams of AIs is going to look a bit different from managing teams of humans. And we're going to need lots of both. Um, but I think the sort of thing that's really new here is how do you manage... Teams of AIs. All these swarms, not hopefully not little swarms, but, you know, um, <laughs> you, as, a, as a whatever you're doing, you're a lawyer or you're a, a researcher, whatever, you've now got, you know, thousands and thousands of, uh, you know, paralegals or, or research assistants equivalent. Like, what do you do with them and how do you orchestrate them? Um, I think, you know, there'll be plenty of places throughout the economy where people figure out standardized ways of orchestrating that kind of work and it'll be embedded in software and it'll have performance guarantees and whatever but there'll be also tons of the economy the more sort of creative parts i guess you know i very much include artists and, and others here as well as well as the more creative kind of you know, researchers or, or indeed lawyers right where it's like no 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 you can't use software for this sort of, you can't use a, a sort of pre-baked sort of prompts and input output understood thing like your job is to like figure out here's a completely novel problem uh it's like edge of the art You've got all these very smart RAs equivalent. Like, what do you ask them? How do, what do you do with them? Um, how do you check what they're telling you is correct in this like non-understood area where it's like you can't have performance guarantees because it's brand new, right? So that will be a huge, really important skill. I think that I think to be honest, that today is now an incredibly important skill, particularly in research. Um, if I was, you know, in the middle of writing papers right now, um, I would, you know, if I think that sort of writing that paper we discussed, uh, you know, about the impact of AI on the job market, like that paper would have been so much easier to write in so many ways if I had access to um, GPT-4. And I would have written that paper, it would be much higher quality and it would have been produced in probably a third of the time or a fifth of the time or something. And so if, if you are a researcher and you're not using these things and figuring out how to use them right now, then um, I think people who are, are thinking about that are going to probably outcompete you quite quickly, at least if they're competing directly with you in, in some sort of you know, research niche or, or whatever it is. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess flipping the question around, what jobs uh, will not be sensible to go into now? Uh, because they'll be more automated soon uh, maybe completely that's a trickier one because there aren't that many jobs which consist only of you know the things that duty 4 can do so yeah there are examples so there was a new story recently of you know a bunch of people both in the u.s and i think often in the philippines as well who were kind of content writers like very much sort of minimum wage type content writers sort of content factories right and literally it was very direct and very clear. They were laid off and they were told directly it's because ChatGPT is better than you are, right? Because all they were doing is they were kind of outsourced labor. It was like text in, text out. And I was like, you know what? That, we don't need that anymore. And so probably shouldn't go and do that. Um, but I think there's like tons of writing jobs that potentially, you know, now you 
can be even better at because of GPT and like you can earn more money in or like have a better career because you're bringing a really important extra thing. So I guess one thing we've, yeah, we haven't mentioned but is really important is what you often will bring is the context, right? So we obviously have to give context to these uh, algorithms when we sort of ask them questions, right? Um, and some these days, often the context is like, you know, what, what do I want? And like, it's an effort of imagination to sort of figure out how to you know, sort of query, query yourself first about what you want and then put that into the into the algorithm and if you're in an organization of some kind doing doing work or indeed you know working by yourself to, to be something of value there's gonna be a ton of context out there that the algorithm is not going to you know it sort of by default pays attention to nothing but has like everything it could you could it could pay attention to literally anything and so you're sort of pointing it to a bit of the space of things that should pay attention to um and that might just be things it already knows about but also might be you know things that are just happening in the world or things that are secrets that only you know because you've spoken to someone who knows something and that's not on the public internet yet or whatever it is and again there's a lot of that in the world and there's a huge amount of the economy of economic value is people knowing things before other people other people know them or other kinds of sort of you know sort of context that is that is not public huge 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 factors of the economy are sort of things that are secret basically and or not uh, sort of not publicly available you as a human can you know build up your stock of of, of secrets or and those, <laughs> those secrets could be you did some user interviews with some humans and you talked to them then you persuade them to talk to you and no one else can get them to talk to you and um you ask them the right questions and then you now know a lot about this kind of person and that's really helpful for building products for them um or you've been talking to politicians about what they really care about when it comes to this area of regulation and like they were not taught to anyone but they talked to you and you're the only person who knows what these different politicians think about this, this question right again Claude cannot do that. GPT-4 cannot do that. Um, only you can do that. Maybe they'll help you write the questions, but like only you can get the context. And so, you know, other areas of which there are many where kind of the scarce thing is the context, um, that is, feels to me, a pretty pretty safe bet for, for the future. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Moving to another topic, uh, we actually haven't talked yet about what you're working on now. Yeah, so what I'm working on now is actually a secret project that I can't yet tell you about. Um, but I can tell you a little bit about the um, the, the motivation and, and wider context. So, Wow, that sounds great. And what a, <laughs> what a way to pique listeners' interest. Yeah, uh, apologies. That, that's, that, I'm not trying to do that. Um, in government, one of the things that uh, one does is work on strategies. So one thing the government does, it writes lots and lots of strategies, and you end up with strategies coming out every ears. And so I was involved, you know, uh, tangentially or, or very directly in the, the UK government's uh, national AI strategy, national quantum strategy, national innovation strategy, national space strategy, wow. the integrated review of security, <laughs> defence, development and foreign policy, all these different things. And I started to notice a pattern, which was pretty much every single one of these strategies had sort of pillar one, you know, paragraph one, clause one was, was always like the most important thing is talent. The most important thing is we need more people with the right expertise in this particular area, whatever it is, you know, throughout the economy. So that might be, you know, in, in companies, in startups, in, in university labs, in corporate labs, in the government itself. And that was always sort of the most important bottleneck. So I did a lot of work figuring out, you know, how do we solve this? Um, and sitting in the government, you might think you have all kinds of levers um, to to pull to help solve sort of talent problems. And we did a lot of work on the sort of 
the, the quote sort of easy thing you can do, um, which is making it easier for people with the right skills, um, you sort of like your very advanced skills to, to come to the UK from other places. But there's only so many of those people and every other country also is trying to attract them. So you have to <laughs> right. do much more to um, actually, you know, build, grow uh, the talent right here. And so I did what seemed to me to be the obvious thing, which is going to the existing higher education sector, because we're talking really here about expertise at the level of at least a master's degree, if not a PhD and and beyond, and had all kinds of meetings with vice chancellors and, you know, all all these kinds of people. And, you know, our our universities are amazing. Like they are one of uh, the jewels of of this country and and the world. Um, But it's also the case that they are not really naturally set up um, to help with this problem at the requisite scale. So sort of my sort of tagline of what we need is more experts fast, right? That's what we need. So for any cause area, if you like, so with sort of, you know, policy area from within government, um, maybe here we talk more about sort of cause areas. So taking you know, AI safety as, as another example, right? So sort of what we need is more people who can do this, do this work, do this research, uh, like as fast as possible. And uh, you go talk to universities, and I, I will try and avoid naming names, but there's a few problems they have, right? So, so one problem is that they often don't actually have the expertise. So in many areas, like these kind of, all these ones I mentioned in terms of all these strategies, these sort of cutting-edge technologies, uh, or the, the place with the most societal importance and, and urgency, are also the places where there's sort of often the most investment going into these areas sort of anyway from the private sector. And often the cutting edge is not in the universities. It is in these corporate labs. So AI is the most obvious example, right? Right. And what this means is that, you know, there were a bunch of great researchers um, in these areas at, I won't name any particular universities, but sort of the ones you would obviously think of as like sort of the the really good ones, right? Um, They had many of these great researchers 10 years ago. But 10 years ago, they all left and they're all at DeepMind now um, and, you right. know, and similar companies, right? Why would you stay in a university when you can get paid 10 times plus as much and have way more resources and be on the cutting edge, right? So these universities have really been sucked dry, many of them, um, of, of the best talent and the people who can sort of do, do the teaching. And the other problem is that they are governed generally by the sort of the faculty as a as a broader body and because they have these constraints in terms of space you know physical space constraints for the most part that means that um, if you want to have more say computer scientists which you may or may not think is a good idea but suppose you think it's important to have more computer scientists being trained that means that you know some professor of you know english literature has to say that's great. Yeah, let's go for it. I will happily accept fewer English students in order to make room for more computer scientists. Um, yep. At least that's just the way it works in the UK. And believe it or not, that generally doesn't happen uh, because people don't want to say, sure, let's yep. have fewer of, the, of my people and more of your people. Um, and because of the governance, sort of these people actually make the decisions. I, I will name one name. I believe uh, these numbers are correct. Last year, Oxford University accepted something in the region of 300 people to read English language and literature and something in the region of 30 people to read computer science across the entire university at undergraduate level, right? Whoa. It's completely crazy, I think, to most people. Yeah, that's wild. Right? And then, picking another quick example, he puts on Oxford, so let's pick on Cambridge as well. You know, how many people do you think uh, are able to be accepted or enrolled in Cambridge University's course on uh, NLP, so natural language processing, which is the bit of AI that 
you know, ChatGPT and all this stuff sort of kind of came out of originally. How many places are there on that course? Uh, 15, one five, right? Per year, oh, right? No. So um, this wow. is kind of, you know, not going to solve, you know, what we're trying to, you know, what as a, you know, as a country, as a, as a world, we, we need, um, we need to do. Um, and also these, you know, these courses, again, just to pick on Cambridge, you know, this, this course is based on a textbook from 2008. So not only pre large language models, like pre deep learning, it's sort of incredibly out of date. And so I decided after lots of sort of banging my head against these sort of thousand year old immovable brick walls, um, that it would be easier uh, to solve this problem by actually leaving government and building something new that would like directly solve the problem than staying in government and trying persuading other people to solve it, which was not going very well. Um, so I can't say much more than that at this point because it's all kind of under wraps. But okay. so I hope that gives a sense of what, what we're building. And so I guess, uh, yeah, can't say more than that other than probably when this goes out, I'll be hiring. So oh, amazing. <laughs> if you're interested in learning more or being involved, um, you know, please get in touch. I guess we'll put the, my sort of details on the, uh, on the yeah. show notes, but my email's on my website, which is michaelweb.co. And um, yes, please please do get in touch that's really exciting and yeah i can't wait to hear what that is but it sounds like um relieving some of the talent bottlenecks um maybe around is it stem issues in particular yeah well and well i think we'll start start with uh, ai and, and ai safety in particular because that, that's where it feels like there is the most important bottlenecks right now yeah great i i would agree I guess we'll all just eagerly await for whatever that is to become public. (laughs) But thank you for the, yeah, thank you for the teaser. So this has been a marathon interview. Uh, So we should go to our final question now. Yeah, I'm curious. You've been a choral conductor and an organ scholar. And I think this is super cool. I um, uh, have sung in choirs for many, many years. And I love music quite a lot. Uh, And uh, it seems like we might have that in common. And I don't really know what I think about uh, AI creating music yet. Uh, So I'm assuming that you're, yeah, you're pretty passionate about music. Do you have a take on how you'll feel about AI music once it starts getting really good? Mm. I think it already is really good under some definition of, of really good, right? It can already produce music that like experts can't distinguish from the real thing for like many, many genres. And that's only going to sort of continue. I think though that sort of, in a sense, sort of c- composers are not the scarce thing. So always uh, compositional ability at least that that, that sort of pure can you replicate some style um uh, or whatever it is i think the scarce thing so one is for me what i love about music is it's all about the the live performance and you know in in choral music that's often you know it's in a concert hall it's often part of a, a church service and there's a sort of you know a choir of people who sort of come together every week and those people or indeed every day in some cases right and like they like that is something that is very 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 special and indeed some of these choirs um you know there's like some in oxford and cambridge colleges that have like have not basically haven't missed a singing a service for like 800 years like there's this one continuous thing and there's you know they've been singing some of the same music for 800 years that they've been singing and they're singing a whole bunch of you know newer stuff as as well right and as a human, um, I, I really value value that. And I value this sort of huge, fascinating sort of tradition, both of, of the music and where it's come from and of the kind of people who've been singing it. And it's a really, you know, it's it's a religious experience, right? Sort of listening to this music or call it what you want, you know, tra- transcendental. And it's, you know, listening to it through your headphones, through a recording, um, it's, it's definitely not quite the same um, as 
being there, uh, particularly in in these kind of very special special times and and places. Um, and so on the performance side, I think it's like very clear that we are gonna, you know, sorry, not sort of to jump back into the sort of the meat of the of the the podcast, but like we're gonna we're gonna strongly want to see ever more performers, um, you know, human performers, like doing performing arts, um, like seeing them live. Um, that's that's been a trend for for a very long time. Um, but in terms of yeah, back to sort of the AI music, I think I'm sure we're also you know we're seeing composers who'll be playing around and doing cool stuff using AI tools. Um, you could imagine, and I kind of, we're kind of already here, what suspects with, you know, with Spotify being able to, you know, on the fly, you know, generate some music that it thinks you will like based on your listening history. And like, which I love. Which, right, which many people love, right? And Spotify loves because it means they don't have to pay any royalties to real musicians. <laughs> they can just like have the AI generate it and then they don't have to pay for it. So it's like pure money for them. And so that I'm sure will continue happening and there'll be, you know, lots more of that. But again, because there's so much of that, there's like literally unlimited quantities of that. The stuff that becomes ever more scarce and therefore valuable is like the human who's like, yes, the human wrote this and here's the, the backstory of the human and here's why they wrote it and here's how it links to a whole set of things they've written before um, and here's how it interplays with, you know, here's the human's interpretation of, of uh, you know, relationship to sort of this other music that we've, you know, all also know and love and, and so on and so forth. And like, that's what you see today in, in I think, basically all art forms. So precisely because AI generated art is unlimited and we can all get as much of it as we want at all times it almost means the human made stuff as for many other areas um, becomes ever more interesting and valuable when set against this you know unlimited sea of you know undifferentiated or you know impossibly differentiated in a way that one can't get one's head around um sea of ai generated content our guest today has been michael webb thank you so much for coming on the podcast michael Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. If you liked the sound of that new initiative Michael was describing to really increase the number of experts in AI safety, or if you're generally interested in accelerated learning or in AI safety or education as a cause area, then some exciting news is that Michael is now hiring for that project that he was talking about. You can find out more about that new org at quantumleap.education. Uh, I didn't know that there was such a thing as .education, but yeah, uh, quantumleap.education. Uh, of course, we'll also stick a link up in the podcast description. And if you liked that conversation, two related interviews that Louisa did earlier in the year are episode 150, Tom Davidson on how quickly AI could transform the world, uh, a very good one to, to pair with this episode, and 146, Robert Long on why large language models like GPT probably aren't conscious. And some interviews I've done, which you might like, are episode 158, Holden Karnofsky on how AIs might take over even if they're no smarter than humans, and episode 155, Lennart Heim on the compute governance era and what has to come after. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Simon Monsour and Milo Maguire. Additional content editing by Louisa Rodriguez and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more, as always, available on our website. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>